sloppy spoilers with your host, DT2. All right, what's up, y'all? DT2 Comics right here. We are live here with the Sloppy Spoilers crew. What we're going to talk about tonight is we're going to start our review of the Riddick series. So we're going to begin uh, tonight with the first movie, Pitch Black. A lot to say about this film. This film is intense on more levels than you know. So first, let me introduce my co-host. Welcome to David Nemesis Howard. What's up, Dave? Dave. Hey. Back from the dead here. I'm feeling good and ready to tackle uh, some pitch black. Looking forward to it. I uh, I have to admit, I'm going to put a disclaimer out there right now. I have a man crush on uh, Vin Diesel. You know, <laughs> I can watch any Vin Diesel movie ever. So, you know, you got to take that into account when I'm talking about these movies. So, Welcome to Steve Shadewing Sellers. What's up, Steve? Oh, doing pretty well. I'm glad to talk about a good movie for once. Uh, and in this case, a movie that did Alien better than most of the Alien sequels. So I'm really, really glad uh, to, to be talking about that. And I'm a huge fan of the Riddick series. Uh, far, far more than Fast and the Furious or a number of other things. So I'm glad to get into this. That thing about doing Alien better than Alien took the words out of my mouth. All right. And welcome to Jeff, Dr. Fate Bracey. What's up, Jeff? Are you afraid of the dark? Because I know someone who's not, and uh, yeah, like uh, like you guys, this for me is Ben Diesel's definitive character. Uh, this is the role that put him in the spotlight, and it's it's his Jack Sparrow. It is the role he was meant to play, and uh, I've had the the pleasure of seeing all the movies, uh, reading a couple of the novelizations, and I have the video games, and there is such a consistent through line. Uh, mostly throughout the whole series, that is just a, a, an incredible mythology. I can't wait to dig into this. Have you watched the cartoon that takes place between Pitch Black? And yes, I, I have. I have that whole trilogy that came out uh, with the third movie. Of course yeah. he does. What a question! Of course, Bracey's seen it. <laughs> All right. So, <clears throat> just to give some opening general thoughts, and then I'll throw it out to my co-host. Um, I agree with what Steve was saying that that this movie did Alien on a level better mm -hmm. than uh, everything starting with Alien 3. I still love Alien and Aliens. Uh, and we're going to swing back around to this, but one of the biggest things that it's obvious yet it's subtle, which is why it's so cool. You must understand that in this movie, the planet is a character. Mm -hmm. And they do the same thing in the next movie. And very rarely do you see a film series that can somehow incorporate the environment and the creatures therein. And they're just as much of an integral part of the story and you wanna see more. That's the brilliance of this series. Same thing with the Xenomorphs. There are so many untold stories, so many things to explore in that world. That's how you know when you struck gold, when you love the story world. And so I love everything about this planet, even though the ideas that, you know, there's movie conveniences and there's some stuff to make you roll your eyes. Of course there is, but it's a movie. So some of that stuff, we kind of have to let that go. But the whole backdrop, the whole idea 
is is brilliant. And of course, you also know, or you should know, that in the original script, uh, Riddick was going to die, and uh, Rada Mitchell's character, the captain, was going to live. At the last minute, they switched that because they figured that Riddick would be a more interesting character to continue the series with, and that proved to be right. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> so just when you examine it, it's one of those things, when I look at it as a fan, again, I'm immersed in the story world. When I look at it with my writer's hat on, I discover uh, the layers, the layers, the subtleties, the shades, the different ingredients in the mix, if you will, that make this film so fascinating. And one of them is because it pulls off the rare ability to not only make the antagonist be an unknown commodity, but to have an anti-hero slash protagonist slash crew member that's also an extremely unknown commodity. Mm -hmm. So you're getting it from multiple sides. You have multiple angle conflict uh, when you set it up the way they set it up because most stories don't pull it off that well. And uh, so I just really enjoy this film. It took me a while to warm up to it because I didn't get everything that was happening on the first viewing because there were some things I keyed in on. And, you know, it's like when you tell a joke and then everybody laughs, you miss the lines while people are laughing. So you have to watch it again to see what they said. So there's some things I missed the first time, too, that I had to watch many times to try to see what they said. And... The idea of a planet of extremes, of weather extremes, of, and they, in the next movie, they do sun extremes, and the idea of creatures that function based on uh, basically a planetary eclipse or planetary heat or so many different things. There's an elephant graveyard. We're going to get into all those details. And it's, it's just brilliant, just brilliant story world that you want to see again and again. So I'm going to throw it out to my co-hosts because I do want to hear their opening thoughts and then we're going to do deep dive into details. But let me hear your general thoughts about the film before we get into specifics. Uh, start with Bracey. Oh, man. Uh, I think I had a bit of an advantage over you uh, in that uh, I didn't know a whole lot about the film, you know, uh, when it first came out. The trailer came out. So I go, OK, yeah, I want to see this. And then uh, sci-fi. Uh, the Sci-Fi Network used to be pretty good about uh, sometimes doing a little bit of viral marketing. They were in on like the Blair Witch Project, and they had a really neat piece for this as well. And if you haven't seen it, you can find it on YouTube because I went ahead and rewatched it last night. Uh, but it was called Into Pitch Black, which is this prequel to the movie, which gives you a, a lot of interesting backstory into uh, Riddick and his upbringing and uh, a little bit of information on the... Uh, on, on what's going in. It's, it's a prequel slash kind of sequel sort of thing. Cause it's, it's a little bit after the fact, very well worth watching. If you want to get uh, a little bit deeper into the character and the happenings before you actually watch the movie, but watching the movie, uh, it, you will not be spoiled if you don't miss this. It's uh, but it's a really nice kind of add on to it as well. And you, you learn some things that don't quite happen in this film. Cause I've seen both the original and the direct but they play out in the rest of the series as it moves forward. Um, as I said in my opening, this is the character that uh, Vin Diesel is meant to play. And anytime he 
gets a chance to play this character, he he slips him on like a like an old comfortable glove. Like he's just right there. It doesn't matter how much time has passed. He's always that character. He's always on point as soon as he puts it on. And it's like DT says, the fact that this character is this uh, antagonist, uh, protagonist, you know, you don't know where he's at. And that's the brilliance of the writing here. The, uh, this film has some like the greatest uh, character twists and turns, uh, just really great story development. And uh, the, you can't deny Vin Diesel's portrayal is just magnetic. Uh, he is a predator on the scene. He's living it like he's he's moving like a panther. It's it's so fascinating that you're you're just drawn into it, even though like you you start off like this is the bad guy, but I I, I feel I can't help but be kind of mesmerized by him. It's like looking into the eyes of a cobra. You're there. So yeah, this this uh, this movie is like it's it's got it all. It's great. Now, uh, one thing I'll throw out, and then I'm going to throw it to Steve. Um, I have discovered that there are movies and movie series that give us better versions of our characters than the movies featuring the characters. Hmm. Uh, what I mean by that is the best Batman movie I've ever seen is uh, the Jason Bourne movies, the first trilogy. <laughs> that is Batman. International, all kinds of money, spy tricks. Uh, mastering fighting techniques uh, can just flip into action. Knows problem of God. Knows close hand to hand combat. Knows weapons. All that. That's what Bruce Wayne spent his life mastering. That kind of stuff. That's mm. Jason Bourne. That's Batman. Okay. And so Batman Begins came close, but Jason Bourne is how Batman should act. One. So I say that to say in this context, Riddick is Wolverine. <laughs> This is the actual Wolverine, who Riddick is. That's who Logan is. They had to dumb him down, soften him up, whatever you want to say it, to make it more accessible for families, to keep the ratings or whatever. But if you want to know how Logan would act in any situation, it's Riddick. That's Logan without the claws. All right, Steve, general comments on the Pitch Black movie. Yeah, and, and yeah, I, I, that's an interesting point. I hadn't thought about the the Riddick connection, um, but I will say that it is definitely what the Alien movies were. This is uh, because you know you have these you know these monsters that only come out at night. You know they're they're um, actually a huge threat, and then you have all of these you know characters like that are locked in with them trying to survive, and they have to get out. You know it's a basic same basic formula. Um, and in fact, I would not be surprised if David Toohey uh, was thinking of the line, they mostly come out of night, mostly, <laughs> mostly. <laughs> and, and then think and then took his thought and say, OK, what if I take the alien model and I create a monster that actually mu ha has to come out only at night because light hurts mm -hmm. it? And I, I'm like, that is a really, really great idea. And then you throw in the character of Riddick, uh, you know, who is his own iconic <laughs> character in his own right. Um, although that wasn't necessarily the plan at first. Um, it just really, really works. And the reason Riddick is such a great character is he has one foot in the darkness. You know, he is a monster just as much as the creatures are, in, in a sense. But he has enough humanity, you know, that he barely holds it in check. And so it's interesting, you know, to see the, this guy who is a monster and, you know, he escaped from a slam. And, you know, we, we hear about all these kinds of things. And, and he's having to confront, you know, having his own dark night as the, of the soul, as it were, you know, because of his interactions with these people 
um, that he meets on the planet, uh, particularly the character of Carolyn Fry. And I, I really honestly think that uh, Carolyn Fry is the reason that, you know, that he's you know, leans towards the light at all. Uh, this is the story of Riddick's redemption in a sense, or maybe not redemption, yeah. but like his start on, on the journey of that. Um, much as, but with all the other characters, um, for the most part, except for the Imam, who I really love, um, you know, the, all of this is really about how they're all damaged and how all their expectations of them are all subverted, you know, because you have a pilot that almost tries to kill the entire uh, crew, you know, to save herself, and her journey is about redemption in that sense. Um, and then you have Johns, who, you know, to me is the Burke of the movie. <laughs> I, I, we will get into that, I'm sure, but he is the Burke of the movie. Um, and, and, you know, and he's just, you know, really great at being this slimy character. Um, and, you you know, and, and for the most part, these characters are likable. Like, one of the big problems we had in the, all these alien movies up to now is, most for the most part, these characters are not likable. Most of these characters in this movie are very, very likable. Um, and it's like you even feel bad for the red shirts, you know, and there are plenty of red shirts. We don't get to know them all that well, but we, we, you know, we got to get an idea where they come from. Um, you know, so uh, we get to we have human characters for once we can root for, you know, a monster that is really bad. And this antihero who is standing between, you know, the, these human characters and the monster and having to make a choice between them. And that is I, it's just really, really brilliantly crafted. David Huey is a freaking genius. Yep, yep, agree with all that. Go ahead, Nemesis. General thoughts on the film. Yeah, I I absolutely agree with everything you guys said. I would love to pick this guy's brain um, because mm -hmm. I would love to know, you know, talk to him about this world he created because as we explore this series, I mean, he hit on everything. He hit on uh, hard science fiction. You know, he hit on horror concepts in this movie and also in the third movie there's some horror concepts in there he hit on action and he all brings fantasy in later you know some fantasy elements but he mixes it all together in this engaging world that like dt was talking about i want to know more we still haven't seen furia yet and i'm still three movies in dying to see furia i want to know you know i go and i read about all the mercs and how the system is set up and how these you know, the, the way that the economies work and all these things. Um, and one of the things that's fascinating me throughout the whole series, and Steve hit on it, is that um, the casting was pitch perfect everywhere. Mm -hmm. Every casting choice seems to have just been inspired from Carl Urban as Volko, you know, in the last, you know, in, um, in um, the Chronicles of Riddick to Dame Judi Dench, you know, uh, in Chronicles of Riddick to uh vin diesel here you know i agree with with uh jeff that you know vin diesel was born to play riddick mm -hmm. you know? but you you look at all this stuff and the thing that really strikes me is that david tui wrote real people you know all of these people come off as absolutely authentic and even though riddick is an anti-hero he's a believable anti-hero he is not a mask that somebody puts on. He's an anti-hero only because Riddick, you know, you want to know what has happened to him. In fact, we find out later on why he is so pragmatic, why he's so focused on survival, you know, but at the same time, there is that shed of humanity. And so you can't help but identify with him a little bit and fall in love with him a little bit. And the same thing with Johns, you come to understand Johns a little bit through all this 
And then later on in the third movie, we're going to find out even more about the John's family, you know, and it just keeps building up and up. And each of these characters is believable in their own way and makes sense. And um, it's just engrossing. It pulls you in. And and like Steve was saying, even the red shirts, you know, I forget her, the character's name, but the one lady who is like a, a you know, like a, a mechanic or something like that. Who ends Gaza. Up, we are, we're going to go over that in a minute. Yeah. All those people. I mean, some of the most genuinely good people die first. And it's like, but it's interesting because you're watching this dynamic, this character interaction, and that's incredible as well. You could take it out of the science fiction and put it right into a modern setting and it would still work because the characters are all believable. Their motivations are believable. Their reactions are believable. There aren't a lot of, you know, stupid characters doing stupid thing moments in this whole series. There really aren't. Yeah, yeah, I agree with all that. I agree that this thing, it, it is a multi-genre weave. And most movies don't get the one genre they're rooted in right, no less, weave in multi-genres so well. So I can't agree enough with my co-hosts on all of that. Uh, let's get into some specifics. I, at first, I was going to do these separately, but I don't really think you can separate the two. We're going to talk about two things at once, because uh, what Nemesis said is a good transition springboard. We're going to talk about the opening sequence, and then we're going to talk about the characters themselves. And here's the reason why. Uh, let me list them for you. We have uh, we have the captain, uh, played by Rada Mitchell, uh, Captain Fry. There's uh, Imam, the Muslim preacher. He's got three young acolytes and they're going to New Mecca. There's a teenager named Jack uh, and there's some surprise twisty twist there. Uh, Shaza and Zeke are prospectors. There's a merchant uh, named Paris, the dude with the wine, a law enforcement officer, which is John's and the criminal Riddick. Now, the reason all that is significant is because first of all, uh, Chewie puts religion front and center in a character. And he mm. juxtaposes someone that holds on to their faith in, in, in the face of extreme difficulty and shows how their faith frames how they're seeing what's going on. And there's a line in there we'll talk about, you know, where's your God and that different kind of thing. And very rarely do you find, like you said, that's more of a, a hard sci-fi challenging how we see life. What are our scientific beliefs? What are our faith beliefs? What are the physics of the situation we're in telling us versus do we believe something can be different? That's just incredible. And then when you have uh, basically a Wolverine character, when you have Logan, someone that's scary, someone that's faster than you, stronger than you, someone that's notoriously difficult to kill, and someone who doesn't care to dead flies about whether or not you live or die. See, that's the, the, <coughs> the, that's the devil in the garden. That you got to walk around in the garden and try to navigate, and there's this big old snake walking around with you, and you have no idea when it's going to coil and strike, okay? Mm. And you have no idea what's going to set it off. Um, I agree with Steve about how I wanted to get to know the red shirts a little bit more. I kind of felt sorry for them because they might as well have had on all red because I'm like, oh, y'all going to die. We know that because we don't even remember your name. He don't scream your name until you're dead. Until you, you, your bird child, until your baby child, 
especially as a kid. Right, right. That's what I'm talking about. And then you got people who are prospecting, which is really interesting, but it's the combination of characters very rarely outside of Star Trek and sometimes not even there do we get this diverse of a character base, people with all different kinds of motivations, people with all different kinds of skill sets, and people with all different kinds of perspectives. It's incredible. So that leads me into the question we're going to talk about, which is the brilliant moral dilemma. Now, for those of you that are writers, the tension in your story will always come from not from a clash of powers. That's just a CGI movie. The tension comes from a clash of values. That's what writers know how to do. That's the tension, not the powers. If it's just the powers, it's just going to be a big CGI video game demo reel, and nobody's going to care, which was the biggest complaint about Anakin and Obi-Wan's fight in Revenge of the Sith, as opposed to Luke and Vader's fight in, in, in Empire. That's why it's the values, not the powers. So in this film, the very first opening scene, and by the way, I'm going to put this on the screen, movie rule. If somebody puts you in cryostasis, you are in trouble. <laughs> okay? Let me put that on the screen. I think we definitely learned that last year. There's no movie where if you agree to go into a hyperbaric sleep chamber or a cryostasis chamber or a time suspension chamber or suspended animation chamber, or we just going to turn the air up and you're going to freeze and we're going to watch the air freeze in your lungs chamber. And no movie. Oblivion, Alien, and no movie where you ain't in trouble. Okay? That's a movie. Every single film. Because that. it doesn't true. work out very well in video games either. Fallout 4. No. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to tell you. So, uh, like so <laughs> what happens in this film is that we get the first moral dilemma in that uh, micro meteoroids hit the ship, crack the glass, and we get a bit of real world physics because you would get everything that happened would actually happen with that being the case. And the captain would have to make a decision as to what they were gonna jettison and what they were gonna keep and what the weight of the ship, the payload would be. That's why I love it because mm -hmm. it, it would happen just like that were it real. So what do you do if your Captain Fry and the original captain is dead because he got skewed by the meteors, micrometeoroids, which are hitting your ship as fast as bullets? And now you've got to decide, am I going to save myself? Am I going to save a segment of the crew? Am I going to try to save the ship? Am I going to save the cargo? She had to make all them decisions. And her decision was to get rid of the crew. It just didn't work. The hash didn't work. Lash didn't work. Because if it did, it would have been a different movement. So I want to hear your thoughts on that, but I want to hear them from this perspective. I want to hear them from a writer's point of view, and then I want to hear them from a what would you do if that was you? So comment on it. Comment on to his writing, but then comment on it on if you're Captain Fry, what do you do? So I'm going to let our military folks mull on that, and I'm going to start with Steve. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, from the writer's point of view, I, I love this whole thing because this weighs on uh, Carolyn Fry's character the entire movie. And we see that her entire arc is dependent on this choice that she made, even if it didn't go through the way that she had planned, 
you know, she was willing to drop these people. And I mean, I can understand to a certain extent the calculus that's going on in her mind. Um, you know, save who you can. Um, so at least somebody gets out of this or try to save everybody. And then maybe everybody dies. I mean, this is what she was facing. And, you know, she's somebody who is not used to command because she wasn't even the, the, the dedicated captain. Um, she wasn't even the first mate. Uh, that was Owens. So, you know, here she is. She's basically the, the only ranking officer aboard the ship at this point. And she's having to make a calculus for the entire crew and, the, and all the passengers um, the whole time. That's a very difficult decision. And here she is. I mean, you, you could argue she wasn't fully mentally prepared to make it. Um, and that's really interesting, um, you know, because she's not uh, addressing it the way that an experienced captain like uh, maybe like a Jim Kirk would. OK, you know, she's somebody who is thrust into this role and she has to make that decision and she can't live with it. The entire movie, she cannot live with it. And and the and the guilt keeps brought, begins, uh, being brought back up by various characters, most notably John's uh, and to a certain extent, Riddick himself. Um but, you know, here she is making that choice. And I think that this ultimately leads to why she cannot abandon the people at the end of the movie, because she knows she almost killed them. She could have killed them. And she chose, uh, you know, OK, I, 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 you know, I can't live with that. So I have to save everybody that's left, even if it kills me. That is a really great character arc. I love every moment of that. I love her character. I hated that she died. Uh, for that reason, you know, because I felt like, you know, she had really had earned her redemption by the end. But you need this moment in the beginning. You need this moment where, you know, she almost kills these people for, for that character to really uh, start off on that. And, and I liked also that 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 decision, you know, keeps uh, becoming a thorn in her side throughout the entire movie. And it's something that that she has to fight to keep the loyalty of the people around. You know, because she, you know, eventually they find out that she did this or she almost did this. So, you know, how she has to rise up and be a leader as well. So there's all of these elements uh, weighing on that. So as a story, it's really, really great. I, I, I really love her whole arc and I love her old character. And she is the one character I most regret uh, that ends up getting eaten by the aliens. I, I yeah, that really kind of gets me. Um, in terms of my decision, I, I don't know. Um, I actually, this kind of stuff, it's like you never know. What, until you're in that position and you have to make it. Um, and I can definitely see where you could be tempted to say, okay, we've got to save everybody. No matter, I mean, we have to, you, you know, you, you have to kind of do what you can to save yourself, even if it means, you know, sacrificing people. Um, I think I probably would have tried. I think I, it's very easy to say I would have tried to save everybody and I would have wanted to, and probably I would have tried, but, you know, you just, you just never know until you're in that position and you're feeling the adrenaline. Um, I'm Yeah, yeah. It's um, it's something you have to think about, but you you do have to make a split second uh, decision. Uh, go ahead, Nemesis. Let me hear what you think about it from a writing point of view, and let me hear what you would do were you Captain Fry. Um, well, I agree with Steve on everything he said right up until his last point in that. Um, I think that the moral, like you were talking about, the moral dilemmas here are many and they're varied. You know, not only is there the one with Carolyn Fry, there's the one with John's. You know, the 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 second in command, um, you know, 
Carolyn is flying because she's the, the pilot. The, the captain is dead. The second command is a guy who props open the door so she can't jettison the um, the crew. And then he's going to end up getting hurt when they crash land. And we're going to come to find out later, and, I, and you know, I'll wait when we talk about Johns, that Johns had the, the means to spare this guy, you know, undue pain and suffering and didn't. You know, and I think that that is a moral dilemma that Johns fails. And it really is illustrative, illustrative, illustrative of Johns character. Um, you know, and Riddick has this this ability to bring out um, the true character of all of these different people, you know, and uh, by pushing their buttons or whatever his ability is, he has this ability to expose people for who they really are. And I absolutely agree, with Steve, that this guilt you know, there, there's a saying that that uh, moments of stress bring out the true character of people. I think that is absolutely true in this character. You know, it's like she, I agree that she wasn't prepared for this, that she made that she panicked. She made a snap decision. You know, maybe if she had more uh, experience, she would have made a different decision or gone a different route. But she didn't. She was put in that in that decision. And then her true character is also revealed, though, because she had guilt about it. You know, most, you know, some people are like, would Johns have had any guilt about it? He would have just moved on with his life more than likely <laughs> and buried himself in drugs. Um, so, you know, that is there. And, and I think it makes a lot of sense. Where I disagree is about her dying. I love that she died because to me, it's very token-esque, which, you know, in token, doing the moral thing, doing the right thing, doing the good thing is no guarantee of physical safety. It's only a guarantee that your soul is is intact, that you have done the right thing. I would thing. only add one thing to that, and that is that her death does have one purpose, and that is it inspires Riddick to be better. Yeah. I agree with that. I don't know that it inspires Riddick to be better. I think it inspires Riddick to be better when people deserve it. I, I guess that's the caveat yeah. I would put on it, is yeah. that yeah. Yeah, that's Riddick, right. That's right. Riddick will never put himself out there for people he thinks don't deserve it. But he will put himself in danger if he thinks that the person deserves his help, you know. And and that's why he's such, respect. Yeah, that's why he's such an interesting antihero, in my opinion. You know, because yes, he's an antihero, and yes, he is a criminal, and yes, there are some very dark elements to him. But at the same time, he feels believable because he does have a soul. He can look at somebody and evaluate them and say, you know what, they deserve you know, whatever it is I have to offer, which I think makes him a much more likable character. If he was just a pure, and and I think DT's point about Logan is is brilliant. I had never even thought about that, but it's absolutely true. Now, as for what I would do myself, I absolutely agree with Steve, I, you know, until you're tested and in that point, it's gonna be hard to say what you would do. Um, I would like to say that if I knew that I was in that position, I trained for it. And I was put in that position where I am responsible. Like I'm an airline pilot. I'm responsible for the lives of these people that I would do everything in my power to try and land that ship, no matter what. And if we all die, we all die because it's my responsibility to keep them safe. However, that said, I know that there would be a moment of a test where I would be like, I have done everything I can. This ship is going down. And I would have to make a decision. And uh, I don't know. I, I can't tell you for sure what I would do. I, I can't say that I wouldn't be tempted to be like, you know what? Mm -hmm. yep. We're screwed at this point. 
it's cut our losses and uh then i would have a decision to make so and that would be very difficult i'd like to say that i would i would stay and try and bring the ship in no matter what but uh i'm a human being so <laughs> okay okay yeah it's it's a dilemma i'll speak on that in a minute go ahead bracy uh, what do you think about it uh, from a writing point of view in terms of this opening moral dilemma and what would you do were you Captain Fry? Well, just to uh, do a quick tie-in uh, in some of my research, uh, this film conceptually is from an unused idea for a Alien 3 that David Toy had. So there's that connection that we had before. And we can see, if you look at this world, you can actually see it's it very much would fit very easily into the alien world. Uh, these worlds can kind of fold in, and, at least until you get into the Chronicles of Riddick, where it gets a little bit more fantasy-esque. But this movie fits very neatly in that, and uh, I really like uh, what Toy's done here. He's he's very grounded. He's got very realistic uh, characters and people. He's got very realistic scenarios. A lot of the problems we had with, say, like films like Prometheus and Covenant are addressed here. Uh, when the micrometeors hit the ship, systems kick in to wake up the crew. The ship is already guiding them to the nearest habitable planet. That's good stuff. You know, we always talk about like, where's the fire suppression? Where all, where's all this? These things are in place here. So it was really nice to see that happen in a film. I'd actually kind of uh, forgotten about all that because I hadn't watched the film in a while. Uh, the moral dilemma here is fantastic because, as we've said, this film is all about moral dilemmas for several characters. And uh, watching the sci-fi thing, uh, we learned that uh, uh, Fry... His, uh, has only just become a certified captain. Up until this point, she's been a docking captain. So she just brings the ship in. You know, she's not the long haul driver. She's nowhere near to being in charge. So she is way out of her depth when she is suddenly thrust into this position. Um, I like the conversation she has with John's later when they're leaning up against the bones in the graveyard, uh, the, the behemoth graveyard. You know, he coaxes the truth out of her. And he's okay with it because his whole business, life has a price. I sell people to slams. I collect people dead or alive. Life has a price for me. And I'm just happy that, you know, you chose to be on my side. He's very practical in that way. And it, it, in a weird way, it kind of mirrors Riddick because Riddick's a very practical sort of creature. But Riddick is a survivalist first and foremost. You know, they call him a killer all throughout the, the film, but really what he is is he's a survivalist. He puts his survival ahead of all things. And we will see glimpses as the movie goes on until it gets deeper and deeper, uh, thanks to the, the arc that Fry has, that he is not an inhuman monster. You catch little looks, little glimpses, little really smart things that both the uh, toy has done as the writer and director and that uh, Diesel does as the actor where you see that like this guy is not the monster he's portrayed, but he's not completely devoid of humanity. He, he makes note of what people are doing. And, uh, part of that is there, it will come to learn uh, both through the sci-fi thing and through the later films that the, the Furian species, uh, this, uh, divergent of humanity that he's a part of, uh, especially one like him, who's an alpha, which is like a cut above. He's already like a genetically enhanced people. Uh, or I should say genetically evolved people, uh, 
they really do have this kind of psychic ability and it, part of it's got to be his street smarts and everything from all the things he's been, but he really does uh, know how to get at people. And that's probably part of his survival uh, powers and prowess, but he's got this preternatural uh, psychic ability that the film doesn't really get into that much. But we, one of the things I do like is we do learn, we get little hints of it. Like the fact that he's awake during cryo sleep. Now, as for Fry's dilemma, this is really the driving force of the whole movie. Uh, it's so great. It's as much as we're drawn to the conflict between Riddick and Johns, uh, seeing how all the other characters react. Uh, this is the meat of the story. It's Fry's story, and it will. It has an effect on the rest of Riddick's story, but it's really her story more than anybody else. Even though um, his his story is like following a parallel course. And uh, that's that's the thing. Like like I said, like she's she spent all these years just all these years just being the docking pilot. Just got her certification, and now she's thrust into the most uh, terrible of situations. And you know, understanding the physics of things, I gotta I gotta drop weight, gotta drop weight because I gotta pull this nose up. And I like the fact that uh, Owens, uh, he is that guy who just, as she will say later, is like when things are at their worst, he was at his best. And he forcibly keeps her from jettisoning the passenger. All these 40, these 40 innocent people who are traveling along with them. Uh, I mean, that's that's a heavy way to start and a brilliant way to start. And I've always said, like, uh, a lot of my own writing, uh, when I was uh, working on short films, I like to start with, like, a, a, a gut punch to get the audience. And from there, I can kind of slow the pace because now I've kind of got you. This is that gut punch. You know, now that we've known and... And it's it's not altruistic on her part, you know. You guys are talking about like the the kind of calculus you have to make this life and death calculus. When she tells Owens, like I'm not dying for them. <laughs> I mean, that was key right there. She's not going like you know I can only save so many of us. She says selfishly, I'm not dying for them. And Owen goes like, You still got seven seconds. Take them. Do it. And it's a, it's a crazy scene. It's actually amazing that anybody survived because in the uh, sci-fi thing, it says they they hit traveling about you know, 100,000 tons at about 800 miles per hour slammed into the surface. Uh, putting myself in that situation, um, and who knows till you get there, but I, I kind of firmly believe that I'm, I'm very much in the Owens camp. Uh, I, I don't think I could live with myself and that you know I, like i'm not an alcoholic or anything i don't even drink but like i i can see like if, if i did something uh so horrible like that I, like i maybe i would drink myself to death i don't know i don't think i could live with it not not with the uh the jettisoning of you know 40 people no I, I don't think i could do that all right well uh i'll weigh in on that and i'll keep it real like i always do uh, what Nemesis said is right. You don't know what you do until you're there because mm -hmm. people can talk of a whole bunch of stuff, but you don't know what you do until you're in the mix. So having said that, I can tell you what my rational calm sitting here talking with my friends behind would say. And that is that um, I know, uh, uh, what is that story? Uh, what's the story on the island with the boys on the island and the pig here? Oh, uh, Lord, Lord of the Flies. Lord of the Flies. That is who people are. 
So if I had to choose between killing people and saving the food and the water or jettisoning the food and the water and saving the people, I would always save the people so the remaining people would have a fighting chance. Even though I know they're not all gonna make it, they would be able to live with that easier. And they yeah. would, you know, they're gonna everybody gonna turn on everybody eventually, and it's gonna be cannibalism and Lord of the Flies. But then that'll be everybody's choice as opposed to if I made the choice and I have the crew is dead, they would never let me forget that. So if I had enough food and water to save 20 people, but I let 20 die then that would be what people would be harping on and they hate me for that. And they would eventually just try and kill me in my sleep. So if yeah. I get rid of food and water and everybody walks out, half y'all going to die anyway. <laughs> but then it'll be your choice and then that kind of thing. So that's what my rational sitting here talking with my friends of mine would say. If I'm in a situation like that, you don't know till you get there. Uh, the closest thing I can liken it to my life is the few seconds uh, before you have a car accident. If you have a car accident and you see it coming, there's this freeze frame moment in time because the way the brain works is you know stuff faster than you can react to it. Like your mind perceives exactly what's going on and then however many milliseconds for your reflexes to kick in, but you get it here. And so I was in a close car accident with my son one time and my son was still very little and uh, it was raining and there were some cars in front of us. And I realized too late, I was driving too fast on that water. I hit the brakes and we hydroplaned. And I was like, oh my God. So my thought was to do what I always do, to put my hand over him. If something happens to me, I'll take the hit. Just you be okay. So that's what I mean. You got to be in the moment. So like I said, because I understand the psychology of people, I understand that if it's known I made the choice not to give him a chance that would hang like the sword of Damocles over my head with the survivors. Hmm. So if I give everybody a chance, even though I already know half of y'all going to die because we ain't got no food, no water and half of y'all can't hunt. <laughs> you wouldn't like the fact that I would have to put the hunters up front, people that aren't squeamish about blood, people that can kill animals, people that know how to do all that. You would get mad that there would have to be a hierarchy because we spent so much time in this country about trying to make everybody the same. But you got to find the people with the wilderness skills, with the chemical skills, with the medical triage skills. And those skills are valuable. Those people would have to come up front and we'd have to formulate that way. That would make everybody that's not them angry. But like the military people understand when you're in situations like that, if survival is a thing, you're going to have to do what you're going to have to do. But like I said, I would be sure everybody had a chance so that their death would kind of more be on them. Because if I make the decision, then there would, there would be somebody in there that would never forgive me for that. How dare you and all that crazy thing that we do and who are you and all that, that would happen. One last thing I'd add is that this situation that Carolyn Fry is in, I think it's different a little bit than the situation you're talking about. You know, if, if it's just me and the other crew member who could possibly survive, if we jettison these people, mm -hmm. then that's why I would be, you know, I would try and land this. I would like to say that I would try and land the ship. You know, like I said, I could still have a moment of human weakness. Now, if I'm in command and I have the possibility, like you were saying, of saving half the people and I got to sacrifice the other half, 
I sacrifice the other half without a moment's delay. And and I hate to say that. I mean, but it, it's kind of the way I was trained, you know, as yeah. an officer, you know, is that at that point I'm taking the responsibility and does that mean I could live with it later on? I don't know. You know, I can't tell you what I would do. You know, I would be hurt, but um, if I have to make a command decision to sacrifice half the people to save the other half, then I, I'd make it and I wouldn't look back at that moment. I would have a lot of soul searching to do later on, but I would definitely take that decision. So, Well, it's why people die in the walking dead. You heard me say it a million times on Twitter. The reason people die in a zombie apocalypse is because you will always have people that do not understand what situation they're in. Yeah. So that's a little bit of different situation, but they, they don't get it. They don't get what situation they're in. And so that's why you're going to die. That's why I will survive because I do understand what situation I'm in. So that's what I mean when I say it, it wouldn't matter. People would, people would, uh, they would start accusing you of racism. They would start accusing you of sexism. They would start accusing you if everybody wasn't in shape. If everybody's not in shape, that means everybody can't climb and everybody <laughs> doesn't have the same amount of upper body strength. If I said that out loud, they would get mad, even though it's a fact. So that's what I mean when I say I'd rather just give people the choice and you can find out for yourself. Because as soon as we come to a cliff and you need upper body strength, if you don't work out, you're in a different situation than people that do. That part is not my fault. Does that make sense? Because that's oh, what yeah. happened. That's exactly what would happen. If I was in a situation with my kid or my kid and his wife, I'm like, we're going we to find out who got the strongest. We're going to put everybody on everybody's back. And we're going down either in single file or we're going to piggyback and carry each other. As soon as you have a person that weighs too much for that, they're going to get angry and start blaming everybody else. And there's a whole bunch of stuff would happen. And then they're going to kill everybody. That's why people die in The Walking Dead. That's why mm -hmm. Rick's almost girlfriend died. Because everybody kept trying to tell her, you got to keep your kids under control because we're going to put on the, mud, the blood and the guts. And the only way we're going to get through the horde <coughs> is we're going to have to walk through the middle of them to get out. You got to keep the kids under control. So what happened? They went out there and the kids froze. Then they started peeing on themselves. And then mama and them zombies said, yeah, that's fresh meat. And then you dying. So that's what's going to happen every time. So I would rather put that choice in people's hands than take it from them. See what I mean? That That's just me. And that's just me sitting here talking with my buds. Yeah. In, the, in the midst of a ship going down, I don't know. We might die. I don't, I don't know. But and, and I'll say right off the bat, it's, they. you know, I spent four years plus officer basic course and advanced course and all the other stuff where they teach you a certain way of thinking, you know, and it's mm -hmm. just, and the first time you're confronted with that, I mean, and we go through scenarios, we go with role playing scenarios. The first time you do it, you, you make the wrong decision or you make the other decision and then you make the wrong decision to get, I mean, it takes a lot, you know, to get to that point. And it's not, and it's philosophy classes and it's, it's a whole host of things where you have to come to grips with the fact that, yeah, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to tell people to die, you know, so it's kind of the same decision. Well, that's what Deanna had to do with Jordy to get her, her, her captain's pips. She had to order him to his death. Okay. So let's transition now in transitioning to the next subject. 
I must again mention the brilliance of the movie doing the same. Because what the movie does is it ups the ante. It begins to reveal to you what kind of planet they're on and what that means. And then it reveals to you what would naturally be there with that kind of planet. And then we learn more about the crew that we're dealing with. Again, it's just so brilliant. So what happens is that they find out that there are three suns on this planet, three suns, which keep it in perpetual daylight, supposedly. Automatically, because it gets most of the hardcore sci-fi right, you should understand what that means. You should understand that anything like water, water in particular, and any type of fuel is at a premium. Mm -hmm. Anything liquid, because most of them are going to burn up. And it also means exactly what it shows us, that there, there have to be living creatures, carnivores that adapted to that type of thing. Now, I don't know what the actual physics of that would be, but we'll accept it because of the sci-fi background, because there would be some type of creatures who had to live someplace out of the light and someplace in the cool or else they couldn't survive. So, of course, they're hammerhead sharks on two legs, but we'll get there in a minute. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so... But then what happens is, is that uh, they start discovering like the remnants or the abandoned settlements of what happened before. And then we get our first death. And of course they suspect Riddick. And then we get introduced to the nocturnal creatures, the alien, the xenomorph substitutes, if you will. And then Fry almost gets taken out by, by discovering their nest or going down into their nest or their lair or whatever. And then I'm going to get to the eclipse part in a minute because I got something to say about that that's tied into training day. So just up to that point, the the thing that was the one of the few things in the movie that was stupid was Fry's approach to that whole situation. Why in the world would you go down into a cave on an unknown planet? Hmm. Why in the world would you not immediately, as soon as you got back on the surface, take all your harness and your ropes and everything off? Why would you, if you had, if you had a choice or if you had a chance, uh, maybe you don't have armor, but why would you go down without a light or a weapon or a flare or something to that kind of thing? But I had to cut him some slack because it is sci-fi and she's not necessarily that character, but it just felt kind of, kind of like Prometheus, like I'm going to stick my hand in the snake. Oh, what a pretty creature thing. And no, but they were trying to find Zeke's body, so maybe I can cut him some slack for, from that. But the planetary conditions, all that heat, all that sunlight, and then somebody goes missing. And then also at that point, they discovered the elephant graveyard. They discovered a creature as big as a woolly mammoth, but they discovered his skeleton, its bones, that kind of thing, which isn't that much different from the space jockey, if you think about it, on some level. So we're going to get to the eclipse in a minute, but I want to talk about what we just talked about. So what did you think about how the movie takes us into exactly what kind of planet and situation we're in and what that means? Did you buy that as a sci-fi fan? Did you buy that as a writer? Was there anything about it? Because the only thing, like I said, that jumped out at me as stupid is her going in that cave, especially like with a tank top on. I'm like, now, now hold on just a minute. Does anybody have a jacket? Does anybody have a knife? If there's something down there that doesn't like light, do you have a halogen lamp? Do you, you know, that's what I would have thought. But so let me hear your thoughts about 
where the movie takes us next when we discover what situation we're in. Three sons, a water at a premium, elephant graveyard, missing dead crewman. Okay, start with Steve. Yeah, I will will say say starting with this, Fry is um, not Ripley. (laughs) Let's just put it that way. Uh, Ripley would definitely have have been prepared uh, more than Fry was, uh, for sure. Um, I I think she's one of these people that, um, you know, she's stuck in a position of command and she's in a position that she's not expecting to be in and not used to being. And and so she's kind of struggling to do these things. And she just makes, you know, kind of dumb mistakes as she's uh, learning to be in that role. Um, I, I, I will say I I don't think that she should have made mistakes that dumb, but I can buy her making some uh, learning mistakes, and, and she did do that here. Um, that having been said, as far as the situation itself, I, I really thought it was generally pretty good. It is the slowest part of the movie for me, um, in, in fairness, but I will say that I like the way that the ecology is designed. It looks like they actually put thought into this planet. Um, some of these uh, alien films that we've seen, they put no thoughts into the planet at all, and we've ripped it to shreds. Um, that, that is not the case here, okay? Um, they, they definitely have thought out, okay, we have the, this world that's in perpetual daylight, except for the part when it's not. Um, we, we see what kind of uh, creature survives in this. Um, and, and we will see other creatures later w- that we can see how they could have survived underground with these, um, with, with these monsters lurking around. So, you know, there is definite thought that is put into how it works. And then uh, the sense of threat of, of these creatures and, and how Riddick points out, yeah, there are worse things down there than me. And, and that absolutely builds tension and it builds dread because you're still thinking like, okay, we've already heard at this point how nasty a customer Riddick is. Um, Vin Diesel does a very good job of proving that he's a nasty customer. What would scare him? And so we find out what would scare him, and it's these monsters that are lurking on the planet. Um, and, and so the, the way that they lead up to this is actually very, very, very well done. Um, yeah, in terms of writer's code and all of that, I, I really don't have a whole lot of problem with that. And even Fry being a little stupid, and yeah, the whole business was, why don't you take off uh, the, the harness and all of that? That was one of the things that kind of bothered me the first time I saw it. But even that kind of stuff, I'm like, okay, you know, I, I'm willing to give it a little bit of a pass because everything else is so good. Um, and because uh, at this point, we like all these characters, especially Riddick. Um, so, and, and we can see how well the, uh, designed that this, this whole world is. So, you know, with all of that, even when they made mistakes, it's sort of like, okay, yeah, that's fine. We can move on and get to the next part. It's nothing that takes you out of the movie, you know, particularly because everything else is so well executed. Really, Scott Prometheus. This is an alien planet. Fan. That's New Zealand. Okay. <laughs> Go ahead, Bracey. <laughs> you know, there's a... Uh, being a long-time uh, sci-fi geek, I really love the attention to detail put into this place. Uh, the first thing I start thinking about is when I see the model. Uh, I forget what they call these models that uh, track your... Uh, how your particular system work and something like man what a weird setup three sons how's that work and then i like oh okay the models got two little sons on a stick so apparently maybe a couple of binary dwarf stars that are 
on out, but they're actually caught in the gravitational field of this much larger star. And there are planets in between. So I, I, I began like, okay, I buy into that. It seems very plausible to me. And I like the setup. It's a unique world that I had not seen before. This world of perpetual daylight. And then you find out that you're you're going to have an eclipse scenario later on. I was like, man, this is this is really, really cool. And uh, it, it's very rare as somebody who's been into sci-fi and fantasy reading and as a cinephile uh, to get something new. Uh, so that's very exciting. Uh, you know, David Toy, big thumbs up. Uh, he just He just brings it. As far as Carolyn here, now, thinking about it, like, the emotions are high. Uh, Zeke and Shaza were a couple. And, you know, Riddick is right there at the site where they find all the blood. So the assumption is he's a killer. We haven't seen any other living things on this planet. I can forgive her for going down there unarmed. She's a pilot. She's not a survivalist. She's not Bear grill. She doesn't know anything about you know, uh, uh, xenoecology uh, or biology, no clue. And as John, at, as John's at rightly asks her, have you got something to prove? And she's like, oh, no, of course not. This is just my duty. I'm the captain. But no, she's got something to prove. She's got to prove to herself that she's not an awful person, that she, in her own way, is not a killer. And so she's the one who risks it. Uh, she goes down there. She's Unlike Ripley, who's obviously, as the second in command of the Nostromo, is very prepared, very seasoned, uh, very equipped to do her job. And she can make that calculus. Like, she was like, yeah, you guys are going to have to stay outside. We got, bio, you know, we got quarantine rules and all this. Sorry, Captain. I uh, don't know what's happening with Parker. But, you know, that, or not Parker, but, you know, John Hurt's carry. That's too bad. That's too bad. Yeah. He froze. But, uh, blipped out for a second. Uh, but okay. Fry is, is not Ripley. She doesn't have that seasoning. She doesn't have that experience. And she has this mother load, this truckload of guilt. So, yeah. She probably doesn't believe there's any creatures. Uh, John's clearly doesn't. And she, But she's got to satisfy her curiosity. As the person in charge, she has to do everything she can because she's trying to make up for what she almost did. Now, as for like her not unbuckling her harness when she does get yanked out of the, uh, the old termite hole, I can forgive that too, because at the moment the adrenaline was pumping. Uh, she was scared out of her mind. She was just grateful to be out of there. She wasn't thinking about like, I still got a line attached to me. And all you gotta do is to watch fail videos to realize regular people do pretty dumbass stuff on a regular basis. So imagine you just got put in a life and death situation. Uh, things happen. Things happen. Like you can, you can't forget. Not all of us uh, can have those, uh, those moments of, of calm and cool. Um, you know, you were talking about being in an accident scenario. I've had similar things and there's like, there's a little part of my brain that kind of kicks into gear where like, I, I don't freak out, but I just, like my focus becomes really sharp and I just like very quickly make the adjustments to, to avoid trouble. It's not always successful. I've been in a few wrecks, uh, but I like to think that that kicks in most of the time, but there have been a couple of times where like something happened and like a, 
like we got in an accident. I was asleep at the time and I woke up and I had a total freak out <laughs> because I, I wasn't engaged in the situation. It took me completely by surprise. I'm screaming, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, because I thought, like, crap, we're all about to die. Obviously, that didn't happen. So, but, you know, uh, you know, different people are going to react different ways, as we've kind of discussed. And uh, Fry's doing the best she can, but she's not really the best person for the job. Okay. Now, that's a perfect summation. That I agree with wholeheartedly. She is doing the best she can, but she doesn't have the skill set. She doesn't have the mindset. She doesn't have the frame to deal with what she's dealing with. That's, that's very well said, Jeff. Okay, Nemesis. So uh, where the movie has brought us up to this point, three sons, elephant graveyard, dead crew member. We going down in the hole. <laughs> think about all that. <laughs> um, yeah, well, let me hit on, on the planet first. Um, I think it's absolutely brilliant. Everything about this, I think, is well thought out. I think Tui does a great job with the rogue comet and the micrometeors and then this, this whole system, this planet. I mean, and it seems easy, but it's not. Because it takes a lot of thinking to think about trying to come up with a scenario and a planet and a xenobiology and all of this stuff to make it a a living part of your movie, which is what this is. You know, you mentioned before the four corners. Well, one of the corners is a planet monster thing. Well, mm -hmm. it took actual thought to make it so that it made sense. And it did make sense. And yes. was, everything about it made sense. Um, there were a couple parts where, you know, that it was convenient for movie thing, like the fact that they happen to arrive on the very day that happens only every 22 years. But it's like, that's so nitpicky because it's like, okay, if they didn't, we wouldn't have a movie. So, you know, <laughs> shut up, Nemesis, and go away because you can't nitpick that one. And it's kind of the same way with, I, I agree with what Jeff was saying about her coming <clears throat> up out of the hole with the harness on. It's like, it was a movie moment that needed to happen and you can't explain it in that she's freaking out and she's full of adrenaline and it's not even thinking about that. It's like, I, I, I just climbed up, I saved my life, I'm safe. And then all of a sudden, whoop, and we get a, and we get a moment in the movie. So it's like, I, I could overlook that now to Carolyn herself and what she does. I agree with Jeff and, and Steve, I, I, all of this is believable to me, but I have a little bit different take on it. And to me, it, it's all about the dynamics of leadership. She has been thrust into a leadership role that she is not comfortable in. She doesn't feel she deserves to be the leader. And leaders in that position don't command through authority, don't command through force of will. They try and make up for their lack, their lack of perceived authority or lack of perceived will through action. You know, so she's mm -hmm. trying to lead by action. This is why so many young officers get killed. Because instead of leading through authority and force of will because they don't have respect for their troops, they go off and lead the charge of the front and they get shot. When really what you're supposed to do is stay back and command your troops. You know, you have no business leading a charge up the hill. You know, you would like to do that, but you're more important to do other things, you know. And so she is trying to make up for her lack of authority within the group her perceived in her own mind, she doesn't feel like she deserves to be the leader for any number of reasons, including the fact that she was willing to kill everybody, but she's young, she's inexperienced. She doesn't feel like she deserves to be listened to. And so when the opportunity for comes for her to try and exert some authority and show some leadership, she takes this bold step to go down there. And I think the point is also true, which is at this point, they've seen no monsters. They have Riddick. 
you know, caps, you know, is it, do they have Riddick at this point or is Riddick on the loose still? They have Riddick. Yeah, they have Riddick. So all she knows is she's going down in a hole to find a body, you know, and she's showing some leadership. So it makes sense to me. Um, her not having a light. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I, I will give you that one. You know, it's like, why, why doesn't she have a light and everything? I thought but, she had uh, a small light when she's first crawling through, but like yeah. when the things start moving around, she drops it. Okay. So, but yeah, I, I really see her actions as a way of her, her insecurity within herself and within her position within the group. She has been thrust into a leadership role and she is dealing with a lot. She's dealing with the fact that she is not a leader, has not been trained to be a leader. She's a pilot and has guilt over the fact that every time she looks at all these faces, she realized that they were seconds away from being dead. And if it were up to her and it were her alone, they would be dead. So she is compensating and not making good decisions necessarily or rational decisions all the time because of it. Now, coupled with what Bracey said, what Nemesis just said, I think is a very thorough and well-supported perspective because what Nemesis talked about to sum it up in one word is bravado. And so because she's not really a leader, because she's not really trained and because she doesn't feel worthy, she's going to make more grandiose gestures to try to bravado her way through it. And Nemesis has talked about that before, that that's normally the difference between training and not training or solid self-esteem and worthiness or not. That if you don't really feel it in here, you're going to do something loud and blustery out here because you're overcompensating for your lack in the soul. So I think that's really well said. She's like the second in command of Covenant, just better than that guy. Yeah. All right. Hold on to your eyebrows because it's time for Captain Nitpicker. Because <laughs> I'm going to nitpick up in this mode. So, what happens next, even though I agree with what they said, what happens next for me was up there with Jake in the tub in training day. Beat within an inch of his life by three of uh, Alonzo's thug associates with a double barrel shotgun right here. Finna put a double barrel blast through your uh, through your brain, and oops, a picture falls out of my wallet. And oops, is the girl I saved earlier. And oops, is Smiley's niece. And hmm. oops, he don't shoot me, even though Alonzo told him to shoot me. He said, we're going to get to the bottom of this, Keno. So then he gets to the bottom of this, and he said, oh, look at that. It's my little cousin, so I guess I'm going to let you off the I, Oh, I'm sorry. I, I, I couldn't. I hmm. love the movie, but that one, I'm like, that, <laughs> that's a string of awfully strong movie conveniences to let Jake survive, because they still would have shot him. One of his friends would have snatched the gun out of his hands and shot him anyway, and they would have asked questions later. They would have shot him. How does Jake walk out of that? They would have shot him. Sorry. So, but okay, but I got my captain nitpicky hat on. So I'm saying that to say what Nemesis said was right, but I'm going to nitpick it anyway. Because they did land on a planet on the one day. <laughs> In 22 years that all of a sudden the sun's in the planet, everything aligned, and then it gets 
You guessed it, pitch black. Not that I can't buy it because we need it to make the movie work. It's that <clears throat> they put it together like the Scooby gang would. Oops, here's a bunker. Oops, this bunker has, happens to have a stellar cartography station. Oops, this station happens to have uh, facsimiles of the planet. Oops, we can just turn a thing and we can figure out just to turn the thing and it clicks into 222 two, two, and oops, we see what's going to happen. And, and mm. I would have bought it easier if we didn't have that scene and it just happened. Mm. So if it had just happened and all of a sudden they're looking up and everybody's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Is, are the suns going down? Is it getting darker? Why? And the next thing they know, the creatures come out and you hear that, that sound that they make, which sounds like uh, storks on steroids, that, that sound. And all of a sudden, and then you realize we're in some deep stuff here. That I would have bought. But the whole Scooby gang, there's 20 libraries in the town and you go to the one library with the one book on the one shelf that tells you everything you need to know. And you say, it's Farmer Johnson EMC. No, that's the Scooby-Doo ending. So I know I'm being nitpicky. I admitted that up front. But that that whole thing with the with the stellar cartography station and the planetary, no, no. Even if I give you the 22 years eclipse because we couldn't have had a movie, I have to give you that one. But that, no, nope, nope, sorry. But anyway, but that's the only time in the movie that I was just like, yeah, nope, not having it. Uh, and then uh, one of the redshirt kids gets killed. So I guess the thing, uh, this isn't quite that moment, but I said it last night. The next thing that happens is Shaza dies and she gets ripped apart. And remember, she's still screaming with her torso separated from her legs and she's still alive like uh, Darth Maul and whatnot. But what I didn't understand, and, and I'm sure y'all can fill it in, is how, uh, if we're, uh, unless we're going to use Remick's uh, premonition powers, how he knew what was going to happen, like he'd been there before, how he knew to just go flat. Why did they miss him? What are they hunting by? Is it motion or is it heat? Because those are two different hunting things. If they're blind and they're hunting with radar like bats and daredevil, then Shaza getting taken out makes sense because she's moving and Riddick is not. But if it's like predators and it's infrared and it's heat or uh, carbon content or salt content or your breathing, do they have super sensitive hearing or whatever? So that whole thing was like, and, and the reason that thing just kind of made me get, get that face was because I'm like, y'all just figured out it's a 22 year eclipse. That means planetary conditions have changed to something that don't happen, but once in almost a quarter century. So you should have immediately, you should have immediately got out of where you were and got back to safety. I know they did go, but they didn't go fast enough for me because I would have been out the door. Like, oh, it's <laughs> the eclipse in a few minutes. I'm like, like, where's David? He's at the ship. <laughs> but that's just me. That's just me. I'm being Captain Nitpicky. I admit it with the completeness. But I do want to hear what you guys have to say because that whole thing. I love the concept. It's just the execution of them finding out it was so Scooby-Doo to me. And I'm like, y'all didn't think 
There might be some night creepers, some night crawlers. Y'all didn't think might be some stuff that's been waiting to eat since 22 years ago. Because remember the movie rule. Nobody in a science fiction movie has ever seen a science fiction movie. <laughs> but anyway, I definitely want to hear your thoughts on that, about the convenience of finding out about the eclipse and the little mock-up station and the way Shaza dies and the way Riddick doesn't. So let me hear your thoughts on that. I'm going to start with Bracey because I know he's got all the deets. Yes, indeed. Uh, yeah, I uh, actually happen to know, because if I dig something, I dig deep into the lore. So I know a lot, uh, but these creatures are called bioraptors, for one. Uh, that's what they named in the FX lab. And so I understand precisely how they operate. Uh, in the context of the movie, you see that they do have an echolocation system. Their ears are basically on these hammerheads. And that's, that's, that's a pretty neat thing, because... Hammerhead sharks have these sensors on their, their wide eyes that help them find uh, prey in a better angle. And, and we see that these things, they obviously, they vocalize, and we get this pretty neat effect of, like, the sonograms, like we can see how they see. And on top of that, even though you don't see any nasal structures, uh, Riddick will later on let, them, let the cast know that they can also smell extremely well. So they cue in on two things. They, they can either echolocate to find you, um, so motion is bad, noise is bad, and blood is bad. So, now to your point, I hadn't thought about that till you said that. Uh, unless it's just pure reflex, uh, at Riddick's, on Riddick's part it makes sense uh, because he deals on a very primal level. Uh, he's all about that lizard brain. You know, he's even talking about when he's in cryosleep, they say, like, only your most primal instincts uh, are aware which is probably why I'm still awake because we don't know his full thing is a furion yet. Mm -hmm. So his, his instinctual and you know, we see a lot of animals do this. Like when there's a threat, if they can't get away, they hold perfectly still. That makes perfect sense for him. Okay. Uh, as for Shaza, uh, when she dives, maybe that's her own uh, primal instinct kicking in. We all have it to a certain degree anyway. Uh, you know, the, the fear response, uh, I've seen other people, like, I, I worked in haunted attractions for 10 years. I've watched people crumble into a fetal position. And I was like, and I, like I'd lean over. And it was like, you know you're dead, right? This is not going to save you if I'm a real psycho killer. You know, get up and keep running. You know? <laughs> but people, I've, I've, it's, it was a really interesting uh, thing working in that industry and getting to see all the different reactions people had to stress or stimuli. Really fascinating uh, if you could be clinical about it while you're doing it. So I'm gonna I'm gonna give Shaza that, and I'm gonna give Shaza the fact that she she gets up in a panic because again she's like she's like safety is just like thirty feet away. I've just got to make thirty feet, even though everybody's screaming like don't move, don't move. You know they're we can see they're still up there. Don't move, and she does. She just panics that that gut instinct like when you see the squirrel run across the road and then it cuts back the other way and then you run over it's like. Why didn't you keep going that way, asshole? But, you know, they don't. <laughs> so that happens. You get dead squirrels. Uh, so she, she makes that mistake, and these little flying razor blades cut her to pieces. And I, I thought that was kind of a nice, gory touch that she's, she's still got enough air in her lungs for, like, one last scream, even though her, her stomach muscles aren't really attached in, to her pelvis to compress. <laughs> It was, it was a gory, fun kind of detail. Uh, again, thinking back on what you say, though, I think it would have been more interesting 
if they had been like, oh, you know, we're on this bright, sunny Tatooine planet, we're stuck here, everything sucks, it's hot, we're just barely getting water, hey, looks like we got a way out. Whoa. What's up with Saturn's rings coming up over the horizon? That would have been a stark and startling moment. That would have been like an instant game changer right there. Mm-hmm. And I, I, man, I wish they'd gone that way because I love that idea so much now that you put it out there. Uh, the model was a cute visual. Um, and maybe if they'd found that like after the fact, that would have been better. Like, oh, there's a nice piece of exposition. Why is this happening? Oh, we found this, uh, you know, stellar talk cartography model and now we understand what's going on how this all happened and like how screwed we are uh i do have a nitpick it's not precisely about this scene but it is it does involve the biology of the bioraptors just for my own little nitpick when uh later on in a scene we'll see that one of these things gets into uh where they're taking refuge in the remnants of the ship uh just actually after this scene and we'll see that it, it has its hand out and it extrudes this long spike. So it's got like a little Wolverine kind of thing. It's, it's a little bit of a Assassin's Creed going on, even though uh, this thing has this big hatchet of a head, huge teeth inside the mouth, claws on the end of its uh, limbs. It can stand on its prehensile tail, which also has spikes that are tough enough to pierce through metal, we see. And there's later on a scene where Riddick has to engage one and he... He's powerful enough. They must be pretty light in structure like birds. But he's powerful enough to grab one and keep it from clawing his face off. But I kept thinking, like, well, why doesn't it just Wolverine him in the face? It's got these claws in its forearms. Mm-hmm. It's like it's like they put that scene in, and then they forgot about it later on. So that's my nitpick. Well, we found that under one of those. We used that power one time, and we never see it again. Yeah. Very common sci-fi trope. Uh, I hear what you're saying about Riddick functioning on a feral level. They hear what you're mm-hmm. saying about Shaza panicking. But once again, the buzz in my brain is saying, I'm trying to understand, did the people before go to that planet on purpose? Or did you find yourself in a situation once you got there? If you found yourself in a situation where, once you got there, then who built the stellar cartography room? Was that there before the last people got there? Well, it had to be... I'm, I'm thinking it was there from the uh, the geologist, and it it looked like somebody rigged. It looked like something somebody had rigged up, and but again, in the context, we don't know if they rigged it up because they were coming to this planet, or once they started making some observations, uh, they might have put it together. Maybe they like blew up in their little skimmer ship. It was like, oh, there's the binary star. There's the star. But you know, as I've said before, this is me doing the work for the movie, so I understand right. where you're coming from. That's what I mean. Remember that that. When the Nostromo, when they come out of cryosleep, is because there was a, a interplanetary beacon mm-hmm. where the derelict ship was, and that's what Mother woke them up for. So that's what I mean when I say if you've got sense enough to build a mock-up of the stellar cartography, what's going on with these eclipse thing, why wouldn't you have left some warnings that when this happens, this you know that that just messes with my mind because it was just enough information. It was an audience scene more so than a character scene. Just yeah, that would have that would have been a good point. You figure somebody would have made a record for anybody who came looking for this mining colony. Even if you make caveman drawings on the wall, I know that's a yeah. very tearing thing to do. But if you had to think about something universal that could be recognized by other species, if you knew what was going on before you got there, or if you figured it out once you got there, 
you would have done more than just a little Scooby-Doo mock-up. Yeah. That, that's what keeps buzzing my brain. Go ahead, Nemesis. Um, yeah, let me let me hit on uh, the death first. Um, I absolutely agree that Riddick is operating on another level. He's got these feral instincts. Um, I think he senses what's going on before it even happens and just flattens himself. Um, them taking her and ripping her apart and then taking her down into the hole. Um, these were all small, really small ones. And so thinking of, you know, small predators, they're probably the last to eat most of the time. So yeah. with the predator, the natural instinct is once you get food, you take it somewhere to eat it, you know, before a bigger one can come and get you, get your food and take it from you and then maybe eat you, you know? So that made sense to me that they took off and that's why they didn't attack Riddick again because they had a kill, you know? Am I stretching a little bit? Yeah, I think I am. But, you know, I, I, I can make sense of that. Now, your point about, you know, the um, the stellar cartography station, I think your discussion with, with Jeff is right on. I think what they're really missing here is a scene with the, the packs from Serenity, you know, hmm. you know, where, yes. you know, yeah. you've got research notes, you know, and this this movie is, is definitely a smaller budget movie. They didn't cool. have... Uh, that was a uh, twenty-three million. Yeah, so they didn't have the budget for, you know, CGI and tech. You know, it's like you could have done it with tech if they had like, you know, but that would have taken away from the allure and the look of the films that go forward. But if they, you know, I I think this was something that was put in there to explain why the heck all of a sudden the suns are going down, and you know I can't say for sure, but it feels like an added on scene. And what it needed was another 20 seconds where uh, Carolyn, instead of figuring this out, you know, through Scooby-Doo logic, like you were talking about, <laughs> you know, she puts it all together, finds a sheaf of papers and research by these people talking about the fact that, oh, you know, we've gone through this, you know, and, and if they had had the budget, maybe a hologram recording or, or an audio recording or something talking mm -hmm. about Oh, we've done all this, and now this this is going to happen. We're going to have this this eclipse, and the eclipse is coming. And we're hearing these sounds, and you know, and then screams and blood curdling. It's like the monsters came out, and you know, that would have built the tension. Um, you know, so that is that is legitimately a failing in the movie. It could have done more, and I don't think that they thought of it that far. That this scene was put in there just to explain the fact that we're getting, you know, the eclipse. And instead, and they didn't think past that, you know, it is the one failing past that saying, well, why is Carolyn, who is untrained as a pilot and everything else, suddenly able to put two plus two equals the square root of 125,000, you know? So. <laughs> oh, she's a pie master. Yeah. Go ahead, Steve. Uh, thoughts on three sun tattooing and convenient. Stellar cartography room and eclipsing and Shaz's death, all that. Steve? You uh, froze? You froze. Uh-oh. They got him. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, is it my turn? Yeah, I'm having a hard time hearing you. <laughs> so, hearing me uh, yeah, or hearing so, all of us? Um, yeah, you're asking me about that. 
Um, I think that um, as far as this whole scene goes, um, I can kind of see what they were trying to do in a sense, but uh, am I breaking up? Yes. Oh. Yeah, I think, yeah, I don't know what's going on. It might be my connection. Uh, I've been kind of dripping in and out. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I think with this scene, what's, what's, there, there were some good ideas with it, but the problem is is I think they needed to really think out what this, these people that had been there before were doing and why. Because if there were a scientific uh, research uh, station, then I can understand why they would have that whole model. Okay, they're trying to study the planet. You know, they're, they're trying to study, like, uh, the, the, the daylight cycle. You know, they're trying to see, the, like, the effect on the geology and the ecology. They're trying to study everything like that. Uh, it seems like they were just there to be previous victims that they could find and so that they can go and get the stuff that they needed to fix the ship. Uh, and so that they would have a reason to be away from, you know, the original ship that they, they, they crashed on. Okay, um, I guess some of that is fine. But they, I think what we needed to see was the, uh, a bunch of data logs, you know, things where they could find where they say, okay, you know, this is what happened. Or, or something like uh, the Mines of Moria, you know, where you have the, you know, the, the story of uh, Cousin Balin uh, right before the deaths of all these people, you know, where we, oh, yeah, this guy went down into the, uh, into the, into the uh, caves and they didn't come back. Yeah, we sent this guy after him and we found his dead body, you know, uh, somewhere down here, you know, leading up to, okay, the eclipse is coming. You know, we think that, that there has something to do with darkness. Uh, you know, we're going to prep the, the, the ship and, you know, just in case we have to make a quick run. Uh, oh, no, we didn't fix the ship fast enough. They're coming for me. Ah, you know, we could have seen something like that. And that would have created a little bit more of a sense of drama, you know, so, or something that... Uh, you know, maybe it was a video log, you know, something like that. But we needed to kind of see, you know, some kind of data log of these people that were there, why they were there, and, and all of this. And we don't get that. We don't get enough information. We just find this thing. And we don't even find the bodies of the people who were there previously. Um, so, yeah, I, I can understand the end. Uh, I, I, I was less bothered because I feel like, you know, there were details that were explainable. But it goes back to the usual point that we have, which is I'm doing the work of the movie based on the stuff that you left there. And really, this is stuff that should probably have been answered in some way. Uh, and, and yeah, I can kind of see you know, the previous points about uh, the other stuff. Um, as far as the, the, the Bioraptors, I'm with Jeff. Um, my original thought was that it was echolocation. Uh, like they were, they had like daredevil type senses and you know, they're sensing the motion through the, the echolocation. Um, okay, I, I can buy that. That's not really bothering me. Um, I do think that Shasta died in a really stupid way. Uh, Morgan would not approve. Uh, yeah, so, I, yeah, I'm not really, really a big uh, a fan of that death. I think that that was a very, very stupid death. And it was done purely to show you um, how these things kill. Like, for no other reason. Um, it wasn't even, like, a worthy death for this character. So, yeah, I wasn't really too crazy about that. And, and again, none of this is stuff that takes you completely out of the movie. It's just stuff that, um, you know, we can nitpick and say, you know, they can do, they could have done it better. Yeah, I mean, it works okay, I guess, but it just kind of lacks that spark. And I, and I would say that, you know, these kinds of scenes are why it's not quite as good as the Fast Alien films. Okay. 
Okay. Uh, yes, that death was stupid, but uh, you know, like I said, uh, she deserved it. So anyway, um, so what happens next, once again, we go deeper into the rabbit hole and we find out that Johns is a bounty hunter and a morphine addict. And uh, him and Fry were hooking up or thinking about hooking up or teasing the hookup until she kind of finds out who she is and then maybe that changes her mind or whatever. And then she kind of does the same thing with Riddick, which I thought was really interesting. So she's definitely into the bad boys. They kind of made that clear uh -huh. as well. And uh, so what happens is after Shaza dies, they're going to go get to, uh, going to go back to the dropship on foot. And because of Riddick's purple eyeballs, the special shine of those eyeballs, we're going to talk about that. He's able to see through the darkness. And then we have what is arguably, for me, the best death in the movie, which is Paris's death. That's the guy mm -hmm. that, uh, that, of course, broke formation. Because I told you there's always one person. Who you tell them, do A, B, C. They say, is that F, G, H, J? I don't know. And then they go and break formation. And then he jacks up all of the power cells with the glow worms. And so, of course, he does. So, of course, he messes everybody up. But it's the best looking death in the film, because all of a sudden these things that have been screaming with with at the top of their lungs, all of a sudden become ninjas. Once again, it's another one of those sci-fi convenient things we just have to let go because the result was so cool. Because when we first hear them, they're still inside the mountain and sides of the rock start to crumble as they come out. And they're doing that orc scream at high frequencies that everybody's hearing from many yards, maybe miles away. But now all of a sudden, when it's time to kill Paris, the dude that was just trying to enjoy his bottle of Merlot, 400 of them are ninjas. <laughs> and they're like, we ain't gonna say nothing. <laughs> so he's out there in the black and they're, they do like tigers. Cause if you've ever studied how tigers hunt, tigers weigh two, 300 pounds and tigers learn as they grow how to move them pounds and say, you can't hear them coming. Tigers wait until they're right on you. And then that's what they did. So they went from screaming banshees to tiger hunters, but okay. Cause it's, the, it's in the trailer. It's the coolest looking death in the movie. And he kind of deserved it too. Cause there's always that one person. There's always that one person. Don't understand we in a zombie apocalypse. You can't be breaking yeah. for it, formation, but whatever you going to die hard. I'm going to make that a movie rule in a minute. So that's hap That happens. And then something else happens, which I want to hear you guys' thoughts on this too. There's a reveal that Jack's a girl and she's on her period and her menstrual blood is now going to be a bit of a marker for the creatures. So now to me, that feels like, like something we put in Maybe just to up the stakes or up the ante or I don't know, <clears throat> because it's a reveal because everybody thought Jack was a dude. But I'm like, you know, so I guess none of the other women were on their cycle or I guess maybe Jack just started her cycle. Or I, you know, I don't know about all that, but it was just really kind of strange. But again, the scene was so good and and they're like, you know, no, she's going to be a distraction. And they're like the captain, and Riddick is like, not her, her. <laughs> and everybody's like, holy cow, Jack's a girl. Okay. 
And and that menstrual cycle, it'll kill you every time. So it's going to draw the attention of the creatures. So I don't know if that's a trope or not. Y'all can tell me. So then, so then John's is like, well, we're going to use Jack as bait, all this different kind of stuff. And then Riddick said, no, I got a different idea. So then they battle it out. And then we get another really cool death, but nothing is as cool as Paris's death. But then we get finally get the Riddick-Johns conflict that they've been teasing because you can't have two alphas and they don't butt heads at some point. Mm-hmm. And, and then we get that whole dismemberment thing. And once again, when the plot requires them to be, the Bioraptors are ninjas. They've been shrieking at the top of, top of their lungs. But now, two times in a row, they're all in stealth mode. Is that some human meat? It sure is. Y'all don't say nothing. Okay. <laughs> so maybe we can do that. I hear what y'all have to say about that. So, um, and then that takes us to the cave, but not until the last red shirt uh, child is killed. And Imam calls out each one of their names as they die. And we knew they were going to die when we met them, but it was still hard watching the kids die. So that takes us all the way up to the point of the cave. So let's talk about all that stuff I talked about. So what do you think about the revelation about John's being a morphine addicted bounty hunter? What do you think about Paris's death? Because if you knew somebody had to die that way, what do you think about the brawl between uh, Riddick and John's? And what about the last of the red shirts? Because he show lost all of his kids or protégés or... Uh, uh, they were sons, I believe, but whatever they were, he lost them all and had to make a choice to hold on to his faith, which I find fascinating. So let me hear your thoughts on all that we just said. Uh, start with Nemesis. Um, yeah, first of all, let me go into uh, the Ninja Predators. Okay. Uh, <laughs> that makes sense to me for this point, is that they've got two methods of finding their prey. They've got the echolocation and they've got blood. Echolocation obviously gives their location away as well because they're screaming. Well, since Jack is on her period and they're tracking her blood, this blood scent, they don't need to give themselves away anymore. So they could track the group that way, you know. And if you, you know, any predator, if they have to choose between revealing themselves and stealth, is going to choose stealth, you know. So that made sense to me, and that, and that, uh, from that point of view. Uh, that's how I saw it. Now, John's, I didn't think this guy could be a bigger, excuse my language, <laughs> than he already was. It's kind of ironic given the context, but go ahead. When we find out that he is a, mor- <laughs> when we find out, you know, earlier that he's a morphine addict and then they find out later on. And the fact that he had the capability that, that pilot, um, I forget his name off the top of my head. Owens? But, huh? Owens? Yeah, Owens. He has a metal rod through the middle of his body. He's dying in a complete agony. We never see exactly how he dies. They leave him alone with Carolyn. You assume that either Carolyn waited for him to die out in agony or Carolyn had to kill him, which is another thing added to her soul. When John's had the ability to put him out of his misery and just let him go to sleep and die. And instead chooses his addiction. So, I mean, John is just a complete dirtbag. <laughs> you know, just from right to left, he is a self-centered, pragmatic a-hole. And, uh, you know, and who's willing to sell anybody out for any reason as long as it advances 
one person, Johns, you know, and that comes through later on when he's willing to sacrifice Jack, you know, use her as bait. Um, so before I get to that, let me get to Paris. You know, Paris had a fatal flaw. We saw it all along um, that Paris was materialistic. You know, everybody has their flaws in this movie. Paris's problem is he's materialistic. He wanted them to sign. I mean, they're in a life or death situation. He's asked them to sign receipts. Yes. <laughs> it's like Jesus Christ. You know, it's like, come on, dude. If you get out of here, you maybe, you know, who the hell cares? You know, so he's doing all this stuff and he's worried about X, Y, or Z. And of course, he is the guy who's going to fall out, like you said. And, but the way he did die and, you know, with the blowing the flame and everything, very cool moment. Very cool. But uh, yeah, you saw that death coming from a mile away because he does have that fatal flaw. And it's like, when you have a flaw that is that glaring, that's like staring, that's like neon sign to the mm -hmm. to the to the watcher. You're like, yeah, that man's a dead man. You know, dead man walking. Um, I'm gonna save Johnson and Rick for last. The e bomb with the kids, yeah, that was tough, but it was one of the most compelling things. And I think it was great that they bring the e mom back in the next movie mm -hmm. because it really built on his character and his faith. Um, I think that those kids were kids that were not his, but he was bringing them on Hajj, you know, to New Mecca, okay. you know, so he's responsible for them as their religious leader, as their spiritual guidance and everything. And, and I think that makes it even worse in a sense, because he is their Imam, their spiritual leader, mm -hmm. and there was nothing he could do to save them. And I think that's why this holy man turns to Riddick later on, because even though Riddick is very antithetical to who this man is and his faith, he also he saw something in Riddick that was about survival, about that weapon that you unsheath when you are in the most dire of situations, you know, and he realized the Imam did that. He was not that man. He had other strengths, but he doesn't have Riddick strengths. And I think that that whole Imam's journey in this movie and then culminating in the next movie is fascinating. Just an incredible art. Really, really good. Which brings us to Riddick and Johns. I mean, this is... Mm. Talk about a fight where, you know, you... If we are going to call Riddick the devil, you know, the devil you know versus Johns and the devil you hate, mm -hmm. you know, you're sitting there and you're like, which devil am I going to root for? I was like, I'm going to root for the devil that at least has a little bit of humanity left and is not going to bite my hand every single time. You know, and so you're watching these two forces go at each other and it's it's larger than life. It's almost like watching Kaiju fight, you know, mm -hmm. but it's not. And, and you're just watching these forces go at each other. And and when John's finally kicks a bucket. Uh, it's not a cheering moment. It's just a moment like. He got what he deserved. He, mm -hmm. he got his, you know, and it's like. And, and that's what's so fascinating about Riddick. I love this character, but at the same time, would I want to be alone with him for 30 days, counting on him to keep me alive necessarily? I don't think so. <laughs> you know, I, 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 I would be very worried, but at this, you know, you just look at him and you're like, he's believable and he's a force. That's what he is. He's a force. And these two forces went at each other and John's was exposed. John's is not who he pretended to be. That's his weakness. He's an addict and a man. He's a bully. He's a man who tries to put on a 
affront, and he is not the person that he he pretended to be at all. Which then brings me right around back to my last point, which is you were talking about Carolyn and how she tried to get with these two alphas. I think that once again, that is a clear example of her insecurity in her leadership role. Because when you are insecure in your leadership role, the first thing you're going to do is try and make allies of the strongest people. And so she is trying to find someone to bolster her role within the group, you know. And so when Johns becomes incompatible, the only other person she has left to turn to is Riddick. So, you know, and Riddick knows this. He calls her on her bullshit and tests her. Mm -hmm. And it's going to lead to her death eventually. But to her credit, she passed the test because if she hadn't passed the test, Riddick would have gotten that ship and left. He had no, he, you know, and that's sloppy spoilers for later on. He had no de- attachment to the Imam. He had no attachment to, you know, he had some attachment to Jack, but I think that if Carolyn hadn't passed his test, he would have left them in that cave, gotten in that ship and been out of there. So. Now we're going to talk about that in a minute. I'm going to have you bring that up again in a minute, what you just said, because there's more layers to that that I want to touch on. Uh, and one, but I'm going to throw it to Steve, but what I want to say is uh, also, if you, you always reap what you sow. So if you're the heartless character, you're going to die in a heartless way. So it's just kind of a matter of time. Go ahead, Steve. What do you think about all these fixings in the middle? Yeah, okay. So John's is one of those characters that you knew from the beginning that this guy was going to turn everybody. Um, and I do like the fact that they kind of like present him as, oh, yeah, he's the cop and, and whatnot. And, and then it turns out that he is a complete douchebag. Um, I, I really do think of him as the Burke of the movie. Like, he is absolutely as, as heartless as Carter Burke. Uh, he is as manipulative as Carter Burke. Uh, and he is only out for himself in the same way as Carter Burke. Um, the only difference is, like, you know, what they're after. Right? Because Burke is more looking at the bottom line and, and what makes him money. Uh, and John's, all he cares about is his next hit of morphine. You know, he is, that's the only reason he cares about keeping Riddick alive is for the money. Why does he want the money? Because he wants to buy more morphine. So all of this is just about feeding his habit, you know, feeding his addiction. And he is willing to kill everyone uh, so that he can survive and get his next hit. Uh, I that that really is slimy. I mean, on, on a pretty deep level. So yeah, I would say he is a, a very about as bad as Burke in a lot of respects. And I'm, and I'm not really, really, yeah. Can I have one point real quick? What Steve just said. Everybody who's watching this, keep that in your mind for our next our podcast after the next one when we talk about Papa John's. And I don't yeah. say that in a weird way, but when you <laughs> con- we when we get to that podcast, we have to contrast. Papa John's versus Little John's. You know, so. Yeah, there's a big difference between the two Johns. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so yeah, John's really, really horrible guys. But we're not surprised by that. I think really um, because you know we know that Riddick is you know basically the hero of the piece. So you know, of course, who is the villain going to be? A guy who looks like an angel and is, and so that that's John's right in a nutshell. So yeah, we have that. Uh, the death of uh, yeah, the death of, of Paris. Yeah. That guy, I mean, you knew he was going to die eventually. Um, I agree that he gets a, a, a pretty good death, I think, uh, at least a, a dramatically interesting death, at least. Um, you know, the guy's stupid. You know, he's materialistic. You know, he's he's always, you know, trying to, you know, to, to sort of get something out. He doesn't want to let go of his brandy, <laughs> uh, which shows, uh, though, that, you know, the fact that he's willing to part with his bottles 
uh, just to, you know to get some fire going so that they don't all get killed. I mean, for him, that is a major, major sacrifice. Uh-huh. He's willing to do that. So, okay, I'll, I'll give him that. Um, yeah, and I'm trying to remember what the other piece was. Yeah, it was oh, yeah, Jack. Um, Jack, I, 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 I thought it was an interesting reveal. Um, I, I kind of like that. I guess in a way, it is kind of convenient um, that you know that she just happened, you know, to be on a period around that time and, and, and all that. Uh, but at the same time, I think it does tighten some of the tension a little bit. It does raise the stakes. Um, and the fact that this is somebody you don't necessarily want to sacrifice to the bad guys or to the monsters, um, you know, kind of sh- you know shows something about her. And I like the, the bond that he had with Riddick, uh, both in this movie and in Chronicles of Riddick later on. Uh, we do definitely see a clear friendship between them, you know, growing over time. And, and you do like to see them together. And I think that this reveal... Um, helps to sort of establish that relationship more. Uh, and, but the thing I think is the common thread between a lot of these threads uh, that we're seeing with all these different characters is that Riddick is a guy who doesn't tolerate anybody's BS. He is somebody who is always going to reach to the truth of everything. And, and, and in a way, I think it comes down to the fact that, you know, he, uh, you know, he has a different way of seeing than everybody else does. And that's both physically and in terms of character. You know, he's always going to see somebody's true character, but more than that, he's always going to call them out on this. And the reason why he is such a great conflict character within this group is because he doesn't give a crap. He's going to tell you exactly what he thinks of you at any given moment. Um, and he's usually not going to hold back unless he thinks that there's a reason to. Um, and I think that with Jack, he held back only because, uh, uh, you know, and told everybody what that what she was. Um, only because uh, at that point it had become important to say so. Uh, so in a way, he was protecting her up until that moment. So he, there is this protective relationship. And, and I would say also argue that if, if Riddick is Logan, then Jack is Kitty Pride. And I think yeah. that that's, yeah. a, that's yeah, a really yeah. interesting dynamic. Yeah. So, so you cool. have that. Yeah. So, you know, we can continue to sort of take that dynamic. And, and that, then that only builds over the next movie. The next movie. I wish we had seen her past that. Uh, and then, yeah, and then the whole fight with John. You knew it was coming. Um, it, it, I, I really do like uh, that, whole, uh, that whole thing. And John goes out being, you know, a, a conniving little SOP like he always is. You know, trying to get Riddick on his side to betray everybody else. But because Riddick is Riddick. You know, he sees right through his BS, and he knows that Johns is going to kill him. Like, the minute that, that he gets his way, the minute that it looks like they're in the clear, Johns is just going to go and take him in and take him for his money, and he's not going to honor his deal. So what does he do? You know, he sides with Fry on, on the possibility that, okay, maybe I can use these guys to get back to the ship, and then maybe I might get free after that because they'll owe me their lives. So, you know, so Riddick is, is doing that mental calculus the whole time. Yeah. So is John Sabretooth then? <laughs> I guess he would be, yeah. I guess he would be in this case, yeah. I mean, they have the same level of hatred. You know, He's Cameron Hodge. Totally, <laughs> yeah, they're both savages deep down. It's just that, you know, John's, I don't, I don't know. Um, maybe John's might be a little bit closer to Shingen, who uh, is a savage okay. under the veneer of civilization. Because um, that's that's basically how I see John. He's basically hiding under the badge. He's hiding under the law. But underneath that, he is an absolute savage with no compunctions. 
Uh, so yeah, and, Rid and Riddick sees this. So yeah, and I will say I like I like the way that he's killed. I was glad to see him die. I mean, I, I know you were then, but I was glad to see him die. That 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 guy I could tell was bad news from the beginning, and he just deserves it. And he die, goes out, uh, I think, in a way like Burke does for me. And you're just glad to see him dead. And and it gets to the point where, and I love this last scene after he dies, where um, Jack starts to show pity on Johns. And Riddick, Murdy reaction is, don't you cry for him. Don't, don't you cry for him, for Johns. He didn't deserve it. And he doesn't deserve your tears. He doesn't. He is absolutely somebody who is asking for his death, and he deserves his death. And, and you know, he is not someone to be mourned. And, and Riddick is always... You know, sees the truth of things, and he always uh, calls people out on the on, on what the actual situation is, and that is the common thread through all of this. And you just love Riddick for it. Good stuff. Yeah, and and it's also it's also such good writing to have again such a wide spectrum of characters morally, because they each evoke their own different feelings, and they're all legit, but they're very very distinct. And that's what makes them uh, watching them interact so much fun because they're all in different places on the moral spectrum. That is not easy to pull off writing. It's brilliant when it's done, but it's not easy, which is why we tend to see more red shirts and everybody that's tried to make colonial Marines as aliens. They're just generic, you know, because that kind of writing that he does here takes a lot of understanding of human psyche and how to how to demonstrate their values. And if you have someone more elitist or erudite that's, that's used to fine wines and, you know, is penny pinching in the face of life or death and just all that different kind of stuff is great. Cause it made me think about Gilligan's Island. I'm like, that's what would happen if y'all had Riddick on that island. Anyway, go ahead, Bracey. <laughs> you know, uh, since you said that, I gotta say something about the, uh, the character writing real quick. Um, what Toy does so well here is this is diversity done right. This is Star Trek level of diversity put into that Star Wars world, that lived-in gritty world, and it just it, it's so strong when you have the you know the Aboriginal Australian you know you have the you know the lady who may or may not I'm, I'm sure the actress is actually uh, British, but like you know she's got that it's. You imagine if man's gone to the stars that we do have this multicultural society because we are beyond our own world now. We're beyond all these petty little human concerns that we have in this tiny little blue world that we live on. So people, in order to get to the stars, have had to learn how to live and adapt because there's got to be stuff way worse than anything that we deal with here out here in space. So it's a survival mechanism. It's like if we're going to be tribal... Now it becomes humanity versus whatever else is out there, which is a you know a, a big theme in a lot of sci-fi things when you have uh, when you deal with alien creatures. And so I like seeing that um, again for people writing movies and stuff in there. This is also how you not just write good diversity, but throughout the series you'll see exceptionally well-written female characters. Uh, without making them OP one punch man goddesses. That's yeah. not how it works. <laughs> you know, like uh, Kira in the next movie is a total badass. Um, the uh, wife of uh, Vako is uh, the power behind the power, uh, a very strong character in her own right. 
there are so many ways to do strong characters. That doesn't mean they all have to be like super ninjas, you know? No. Come on, guys. Stop it. Stop it. Pay attention to these good movies. Now, as for this, the um, the ninja uh, bioraptor thing made sense to me because we actually do see them being very stealthy and very quiet in several other scenes before we get to this point. Uh, we're in there in the termite tubes. They stealth around Carolyn. They don't give away their presence. They're tracking her by the noise she's making. Because in order to echolocate, you got to have good ears. Uh, when they break into the cargo ship, when they're holed up in there and a couple of them get in, they don't give away their presence right away. They don't uh, sing and yaw. And, uh, you know, Riddick is able to, like, kind of fade away into the shadows because, like, he's not making noise. It's not making noise. I'm just going to stay out of sight here. Uh, so it's it's not uncommon. It's like when, when Paris goes stumbling and bumbling and talk about the stupid death, like Shaza maybe didn't deserve her death. Paris deserves his, boy. Talk about earning it. Because <laughs> he didn't just screw himself. He screws everybody else yes. because he's the materialist. He is the least prepared to deal with real-world situations. Like you said, when you're in the zombie apocalypse, you have to accept that you're in the zombie apocalypse. Right. He still hasn't accepted it, you know. Even with everything, even though he makes these small steps, like, here, use my liquor for torches. Like, but, you know, I'm going to go after this thing that just tumbled away into the dark, even though I'm roped to all of you. No, no, so appropriate and so very satisfying that he died. And the, and the fact that when he died, he actually has like a moment. He stops becoming this arrogant aristocrat jerk of a character. And he, he has this really humanizing moment that kind of touched me. But at the same time, it's just so it shows where he is. Like I was supposed to die in, you know, I was supposed to die in France. I never even got to see France. It's like, those are terrible ass words, dude. <laughs> you know, especially for somebody just screwed the whole group. So he he totally uh, he totally owned that, and it did make for a really epic scene to see just how close in on him they, these things were before he lit up the area with his uh, little fireball trick. And that's another thing about this film: the reveal of Jack. I love this so much. We are we are set up that Cole Hauser uh, as Johns is going to be the the hero. You know, like a, uh, clearly this is Fry's story, but you know he's he's going to be that hero dude who's like hanging out, helping her save the day. You know, like where she can be the brains, he can be the muscle, that kind of thing. He's got all this knowledge about this killer. Oh, Rick is the killer. But then they brilliantly break and bend so many rules, twisting conventions on their head. Hey, Rian Johnson, this is how you play with expectations. This is how you subvert expectations properly. Uh, the and it might have been convenient, but I do like the reveal that uh, Jack is a girl. Uh, and Jack, on a period, yeah, it raises the stakes. It feels a little contrived, but it's okay. I can deal with that. And uh, it made sense for the character. Uh, thinking about the context of these sort of films where it's almost like people, space wild, wild west, or uh, space sailing, you know, space truckers, all this stuff. You know, that's something that young women have done throughout the ages. If they were out on their own, we have no idea what Jack's background is. So what's the best way to travel if you're uh, a young female? Well, uh, there have been several moments in history where women have uh, tended to be boys and have acted in tough as fruit as they could, you know, to fit in. You know, even like somebody as noble as like the, the legend of Mulan, where she did this for the sake of her family. I was thinking about so, Mulan, yeah. Yeah, and so here's Jack affecting all the toughest 
things, all the most toxically masculine things she can see. And who's the most alpha male of all the alpha males? Oh, Riddick. And she's even studied serial killers. She knows who Riddick is. She's a fan of his. She is a fan. And she's like, hey, where can I get some eyes like that? He's like, you got to kill a few people. You can do that. You know, it's like she's she's testosterone it up to the max. And there are so many brilliant scenes throughout the film where you'll see Riddick just kind of side-eye even through his goggles. And there are like these little hints, these little hints about her true nature. And I didn't, I didn't catch them in fun, like until my, uh, this viewing again, really studying the film and seeing like the, the uncertainty and you figure, okay, it's just a kid in a scary situation. Watching Shazadai really messed him up. But like once the reveal happens that Jack's a girl, demeanor completely changes for the rest of the film. <laughs> no more pretending, no more facade. I now have permission to be as terrified on the outside as I feel. You know, I'm not trying to pretend to be Riddick with my little goggles and all this all the time, shaving my head and all this stuff. And I love it. It's a great turn for that character. And it plays so well going into the next film. Uh, so I, I did buy into that. I like that, even though, again, a little bit of convenience. But, you know, it's a movie. You've got to have some convenience or things just aren't going to work. That's now, right. yeah. Uh, the, the, oh, the, the rumble in the jungle, if you will. Uh, uh, John's versus Riddick. The moment we've all been waiting for. Now, it wasn't until I went back and I... I went and replayed the video game footage. I uh, went on YouTube and found the cutscenes because it had been a while since I'd played the games. I wanted to rewatch stuff because it, it had a number of revealing things about uh, John's character. Uh, and we, we find out, and, and some of this is a little retconny, uh, just like some things that happen in the next film get a little retconny, but not too much to break it. Uh, we find out that John's used to be a good man. But somewhere along the way, he's gone from being a soldier and officer to a merc. And he's lost his way. And then when he sustains his injury from Riddick, he becomes a morphine addict on top of it. But even before that, uh, we find out that he is a, a complete materialist. He tries to sell Riddick to a slam and then double cross him on the price. We find out something warns like uh, he owes Warren's money because apparently he's played these types of shenanigans before. He's been playing fast and loose from society's rules. And uh, I like how Carolyn and even Riddick keep saying again and again to him, calling him out. It's like, what have you really got to live for, man? And he doesn't have anything to live for. But like all organisms, he's going to do his best to survive. Now, if you watch the movie and you study carefully, Riddick, even though Bill is a killer, and we never get his real backstory. We get allusions to the fact that he was uh, almost strangled with his cord as an infant, you know, that he was raised in some harsh environments, and then he spent 22 years in and out of various slams. But we, you feel like there's uh, more to it than that, and the sci-fi thing seems to imply some sort of a military background as well. Uh, maybe he was a merc in his own, and... Uh, decided he didn't like the taste of it. Again, that's speculation just going by all this extra material. But when we look at that, when we watch the film, I noticed something interesting about Riddick. Um, even though Riddick was willing to leave all these people at the end of the movie, there are moments where he has a, if not a nobility, a code. 
and he kind of reminds me of Hannibal Lecter. Hannibal Lecter kills people he finds contemptuous. I feel like the same thing holds true for Riddick. Riddick hates Johns, but when Johns doesn't kill him, but frees him, and Riddick snatches his gun away, he feels kind of honor-bound, like, uh, you know, I told you to ghost me, but you didn't. Okay, I just, I, I just can't pull the trigger on you. I can't pull the trigger on you. And that shows this guy, who is this legendary killer, is way above Johns already, in terms of morality. Because... Well, Go ahead, go ahead. Yeah. Okay. As far as I'm concerned right there, uh, because we know John's let a man suffer horribly before dying, when he could have just given like one ampule of the uh, the morphine. Just one, man. He had a whole box of them. Uh, and then he's he's willing to uh, to sacrifice Jack because she's bleeding. And of course, that was, that was like that you know, when Riddick's asking him, like, who are you going to choose? I felt like that's, like, uh, because Riddick keeps testing people. That's his test of John's. Is like, you know, who would you say? Like, he might, maybe if he chose Paris, he'd have been okay with it, because Paris was a douchebag. But no, he picked on the girl, and Riddick was making a connection with her. And, you know, that was, that was the wrong thing, but I think he was going to kill John's regardless anyway. They had that understanding. There's that great moment when they, when they hop on the sand crawler, and, uh, you know, they, they have that moment where they just look right in each other's eyes. And I love how, like, when they finally have their fight, when they're, when they're discussing about, like, you know, what, what kind of bait to use, and there's that stare-down moment, there's, like, all that tension building. is like, yeah, here it comes. Here comes the moment. But uh, even no, though he's, he's a ruthless survivalist, Riddick, to me, uh, does have some sort of moral code. And he's not a complete monster. And John has let himself go from somebody who was civilized into becoming a monster. Now, you use that word several times. Use that word code. I think it's a perfect description of what actually makes us root for Riddick in spite of mm -hmm. how it behaves. Because the same reason we root for Wolverine. Because Wolverine might be feral. He might not give a care. He might be outside of society. He might have been completely changed, both with his mutation and his adamantium graft. But the one thing that Wolverine does not do is kill innocent people and kill just for the sake of it, just mm -hmm. for the heck of it, just for kicks and giggles. It's one thing Logan doesn't really do. He will defend himself. He will defend those he loves. He will defend his team. But he's not out there making an effort to take out people that he doesn't have beef with. And so, so that leads me because we're in the last little part here. So we're going to trans transition right into the end. I'm going to bring up what Nemesis said, and uh, I didn't, I didn't talk enough about the shiny purple eyeballs. I love them. I, I just one of the coolest uh, changes or one of the coolest twists on a character. Um, every time he tells a story, you have to physically imagine the surgery because that's grotesque but fascinating. Like, how would such a thing happen? And then. It's used against him several times in the movie that he actually can't take light and he's got to wear those goggles. And that's another thing that makes the Riddick character so incredible. But the ending, the moral layers of the ending, what Nemesis said about and what Jeff just said about Riddick testing them. And if if Carolyn hadn't passed the test, I would have taken off. And her arc was from the very beginning. I'm not going to die for them. 
and she comes full circle. She comes a full 180 with that. And that, you know, I will die for them and all different kind of stuff. But here's my thing, because I'm not going with that where you think I'm going. Here's my thing. What did that get her? So we talk about nobility, we talk about code, and we should have it, and that's right. But what is the moral of this story that he's trying to say? Because what did that get her? Because the one that was the survivalist is the one that left with Jack. And the one who changed her values to be more sacrificing, uh, it was Steve's opening statement that I agree with the most. I hate that she died. I hate the way she died. I don't feel like it was necessary for her to die to complete the story. I would have been happy seeing them because Iman survived. I would have been happy seeing uh, Carolyn survive and have, have to face the consequences of her actions. That would have been an interesting story to me because uh, this is not an exact analog, but a little bit like Seven of Nine. Like you did some stuff out there that maybe you shouldn't have done and it ended up hurting some people, but you survived it. So now we need to know all the details and now we're going to decide what we're going to do with you. I would have liked to see her face some type of tribunal and say, I made this choice and I made that choice. And then whatever hap happens or after that, but to have her just kind of speared and gutted and just kind of out of nowhere and she looked like she was bonded with Riddick and maybe it was done for effect. But I personally think she could have been done better than that. Because again, what's the moral tale? And what are you saying? That growing cold and caring about people and all that gets you killed, but staying selfish gets you off the planet? I got so, big takes on that one. Okay, go ahead, Nemesis. Go ahead. Okay. Um, you know, we've, re we've equated these characters with different people a lot. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I agree that Riddick is Logan from a physical standpoint and from a personality standpoint. But I think from a arc stamp archetype standpoint, from a reality standpoint, mm -hmm. he is from the DC world, Lucifer Morningstar. Hmm. He is a character who tests people. He is capable of doing good things for people who pass his tests, but he's not a good person. But the thing about Lucifer is that he's trying to illustrate people and bring out what he perceives as their weaknesses, you know, and when they do, Lucifer will kill them ruthlessly, mercilessly and horribly or claim their souls and everything. And if you don't pass the test, you know, that, you know, Carolyn, I think, was on one of those no win scenarios. She was going to die regardless. She was either going to die in that cave or she was going to die the other way, you know, one way or the other. And Riddick presented her with the moral dilemma. Johns was given his own moral dilemma. He was given a stay of execution, and then he failed. And Riddick, you know, executed him. The Imam kept his faith, and he survives. Mm -hmm. Jack is an innocent. Jack is on a different path, who will become Kira later on. And we're going to talk about Kira's culmination of her arc in the next story. So I'm going to leave Kira, you know, Kira slash Jack alone. Carolyn has now passed the final test. And this is where I was talking about where it's token-esque. It's like, just because you do the right or the moral thing mm -hmm. doesn't guarantee physical safety. It does guarantee the soul's safety, though. You know? oh. and, and, and 
Carolyn, and 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 even to the point where Riddick, just like Lucifer in the comics and in the TV show, which is which is fairly good to be perfectly honest with you. Lucifer, when he realizes that Carolyn has passed the test, is a legitimately good person. Riddick, I said Lucifer. Riddick mm-hmm. is legitimately mm-hmm. touched and upset when she dies, because against all odds, Carolyn has emerged and passed the moral test. But just like in Token, you know, uh, Gandalf says it best: "All people wish, you know, that we didn't live in these times." It's like, but I think there's a better. There's something better waiting for us, you know, and this was a thing a lot of people don't like about Tolkien is that Frodo never fully recovered. You know, he didn't get to live happily ever. Just because you're a good character doing good moral things Mm -hmm. doesn't mean that evil doesn't hurt you in this world. But you have to be, you know, Tolkien's big message was there's something better waiting for you in a much better life in a much better place, you know. And so even all the trials and tribulations you suffer, and, and that's a lot to put on a sci-fi movie, but that's really the way I see Riddick. Riddick is Lucifer in the truest sense of the word. He's testing the, everybody around him constantly. And when you pass this test, you're winning the dubious honor of having a fallen angel on your side, but it's a hell of a lot having a better than having a fallen angel working against you, you know? So it's, it's such an interesting dynamic, I think. Well, I'll give you a little pushback on that. I don't, I don't really see Lucifer in that way because his motives are malevolent and Riddick's are not. Riddick is more of a survivalist. That's why he feels like Logan and me. It's more of a, can you get through what you need to get through to survive? And if you can, then maybe I'll help you go to the next level. As oh, opposed the, to the DC Comics version of the character, not okay, like yeah, not not the actual right, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. the yeah, DC yeah. Comics version of the character, yeah, 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 okay, good. All right, Steve, what do you think about that ending? I agree with your opening statements about how by the time we get to the end, I had really come around on Carolyn and really liked her and just didn't really like the fact she died or how she died. And like I said, I really would have wanted to see in a subsequent movie her having to stand trial and face, you know, she could have even been in prison with Kira because of what she hmm. did. That would have been another dilemma. I mean, cause I still think eventually she would have had to die cause that's too much weight to put on Riddick, but still anyway, go ahead, Steve. Yeah. I, I think she could have died in another movie, but I, it, I just feel like in this movie, she already paid her dues. She had already gone through the fire and she had, and she had already sacrificed and she was willing, you know, to sacrifice herself to bring Riddick back uh, to get the Jack and the Imam. Um, I feel like that was enough. I don't feel like after that, she also had to die at the end um, in a tacked on way. It just, it just didn't, it just, to me, it always fell forced. I see where you're coming from on that nemesis. So I I get your points. Um, It's just that this was just kind of how I felt watching it. And, and I just kind of felt like she deserved better than that. Um, and maybe, you know, and I also feel like it was also kind of a lost opportunity because we could have had her in Chronicles of Reddick. And that could have, you know, been a very, very interesting thing. You know, how she would have changed by that point. You know, would she have died, uh, you know, fighting the Necromongers, for example? You know, what, you know where, where could have her character have gone from that? And I feel like it just wasn't the right time uh, for her to die at that point. Um, I just didn't really care for that. Um, 
beyond that, um, I'll, I will talk about a little bit about the Imam because I forgot to before. Um, I really loved, um, I think, uh, what ends up happening with him. He, he hmm. is very clearly the moral arbiter of this movie. Um, yes. And, and, and he pays so much uh, for his faith. And, and yet his faith ends up being the only thing he has left because he loses these people who are his sons. Um, they may not be his son physically, you know, but he is their religious leader. You know, they are his acolytes. You know, they are his disciples. He is responsible for protecting and training them. And, he, and on one by one, he loses all of them despite his best efforts. Um, and yet, you know, he's always resolute. He is a very dignified character who I really mm. like. Um, and, and, and I will tell you another, uh, you know, uh, parallel that I see. And that is with him and Shepherd Book. Uh, I feel like he is the shepherd book uh, to Riddick's Mal Reynolds. And, and, and it's a little bit different. But I, I like that he is the one who's always trying to bring Riddick back to faith. Um, and to a certain extent, you know, he does a little bit. Uh, enough to bring him back to save them. Um, and, and, and even though he doesn't have the same relationship with Riddick as Carolyn does, um, I, I just love that aspect of him. He may not have the dark side that book does. Um, but I, I like that whole aspect. Um, I think with Riddick, it's a little bit different in that he seems to be more of an anti-theist uh, than somebody who is a non-believer, which is a, which I love that that little twist. That that was really really great, and and so that makes their relationship a little bit different, a little bit more interesting. But I like that it's the guy who believes that ends up surviving where almost everybody else doesn't, and I really quite like that. Um, beyond that, I, I generally like the ending. I think it's just mainly Carolyn's death that I had an issue with. Um, but I will also really kind of like this one thing, and that is that Riddick at the end has a symbolic death. Um, you know, the, it, the, they always talk from the end by, um, oh, well, Riddick died on that planet. Um, and they even oh. have a foreshadow this with John's kind of saying, oh, well, you know, Riddick just died on the planet, and you know, this is what we're going to say. But it's more than just a story. I think there is truth in this. The man that Riddick was at the beginning of this movie is dead. The, the Riddick from Pitch Black died on that planet. Uh, and the Riddick that flies away from that planet is someone different. Um, I really like that, that aspect of that. that and, and it's true. By the time of Chronicles of Riddick, he is a different Riddick. Um, and so um, I just love that all these different character arcs um, are kind of resolved and, and given shape. Um, and so that, and it ends up, the ones that survive are the ones that are, for the most part, meant to, uh, Carolyn being the exception. Uh, but they're, they're all meant to survive the way that they should. And it sets up um, the stage for them to come into the second movie later. And uh, all these characters are the ones that you really most want to spend time with. Uh, the, the final four are the four that you, you really kind of want uh, to see more of. Um, and they and all of them have the strongest character arcs. So I, I will say, you know, that in that respect, yeah, it's a, it's a pretty satisfying film. Um, there is that moment of, yeah, I, I feel like Carolyn's character was wasted. Uh, we could have seen so much more. But, you know, beyond that, it's a very well executed ending. And it's in a way that's satisfying and enjoyable. And that's what a good film should do. Yeah. Yeah. What's our, our appetite for more and that final exit? letting the ship get crowded with uh, bio uh, raptors and then just blowing them to bits. That was great, too. Another good, yep. uh, like, it's, 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 it's him avenging Carolyn. I love that aspect of it. 
Right, right, right. See, now, now I got to pause here a minute for all you writers got to put on my writer's hat. That is what you call satisfying emotional closure. That's what you call a good bookend. So when there's been some type of moral egregiousness or some type of open-ended or some type of heavy moral action here, then it's satisfying to your viewers to have it bookended or closed or brought to some type of resolution here in a, a similar frame at the end. And the movies that leave us the most frustrated are movies that don't do that, hmm. where somebody's been acting a fool all movie long and there's no comeuppance, there's no answer, there's no nothing. Even if that answer is mercy, even if the answer is you deserve to die for what you did, but we're going to spare you, at least it's some type of emotional bookend to what happened. Mm -hmm. But it gives you that, uh, that the socket to him one last time. And we never got that with Ripley. That's what Alien 5 would have been. Ripley socking into him one last time. Even if she dies, that, that moment where she guns the engines and kills as many aliens as she can was better than her killing herself and letting the queen come out. Go ahead, Bracey, uh, final scenes. Okay, funnily, funnily, just to tie this into the X-Men once again, uh, this kind of makes me think of the scene where like a Kitty Pride burns up the Nagiri by firing the uh, the full afterburner jets on the uh, the SR-71. Yes, yes. That they have. <laughs> Says we're gonna keep tying it to the X-Men. Um, I want to touch on the Imam real quick because we didn't have enough time to give him as much justice as, as we should have because uh, Keith David is brilliant. Brilliant. Of course. And like he, like Steve said, he is such a dignified character. And uh, because there's so much religious allegory in these films, uh, his role is very important. His, his role in its own way is just as important as Jack's role, as Fry's role in the evolution of Riddick's character. This man who admits, well, he's giving a, a little snippet of his own backstory. He's like, oh, you know, you know, no priest. I, I believe in God. I just hate him, you know, for all the things that he's seen in his life. You know, it's like he's the he's the anti-theist, if you will. Uh, and so that, that was a, a pretty neat thing. And yet when he comes back, when Carolyn has proved herself and he leads them out, um, in, in almost this Moses-like fashion, they've got to run through the parting of the Bioraptors. Uh, I don't know if you guys, uh, yeah, you, surely you caught it. Like he, he reaches out and clasps hands, and they all clasp hands together in his chain. Whereas up until that point, he was always like, you know, keep up with me. I only have one pace, kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and if you don't keep up with me, I will leave you behind. And as he tells Carolyn when he finds her in front of the ship he's about to take off he's like oh i love a survivor i love that in a woman he appreciates strength he appreciates those who survive now he's come to appreciate something else because when he threatens carolyn well, doesn't really threaten her i mean what could she really do and he's like you know would you die for them and she says yes and he goes well isn't that interesting <laughs> and that convinces him to go back and when Carolyn is taken by the creatures, his whole thing is, not for me. Not for me. Riddick doesn't believe in his own self-worth. He believes in his own self-preservation, but not his own self-worth. He does have that criminal mentality, because that's probably been beat into him his whole life. I'm not worth it. 
I'm just going to do what I have to do to survive because, you know, that's kind of what I've lived with my whole life. He, he doesn't understand his own instincts, which we'll get into in the next film. Uh, and that's, uh, that was really an important moment there. And I think, like Nemesis, I'm okay with Carolyn dying because I think she was doomed. She was always doomed. Okay. If, she had, if she had jettisoned the passengers, there would have just been her and Owens on the planet. Everybody else is gone. They are not surviving. The raptors are going to come out, and they're going to die. If she uh, and, and like I, I, I believe in redemption arcs. I love redemption arcs in a story. I also think characters need to pay. And because she didn't actually jettison the people, she had redeemed herself. But I, I just feel like she was doomed. No matter what path she followed, she was doomed. If she goes off with Riddick she's doomed in another sense and sometimes you have to have a martyr for the story to work because the martyr allows for the rebirth and redemption of riddick in his own way because he is and they they keep alluding to it it's like you know riddick's dead rick's oh he died back on that planet and he is not the same man in the next film and even though i love the ideas that you put out of like seeing carolyn maybe in a slam with kira or like going through her trial and things like that, that would have been a great continuation of the character. I think from the perspective, once they decided that um, uh, Carolyn was not going to live and that Riddick was the more interesting character to follow, I think it was the right move. Because I feel like uh, the whole time I was watching the movie, I felt like I wanted her to live, but I kind of felt that sort of Damocles hanging over. I felt like she was doomed. Well, I didn't feel like per se, she was a martyr because that is more of a choice. She does make a choice, though. She does make a choice. She but goes back for Riddick. Even even when the imam, who's been like the most morally centered person up to the time, when they're on the ship and they don't see Riddick, he's like, Carolyn, come on. You know, like, he's just like, he just writes Riddick off all of a sudden, which I felt was like a little out of character. But at the same time, he's like, well, she's the only one who can fly this thing. But, but what I mean is martyrs to me are someone that know they're going to die. She was more willing to risk death. So maybe we can give her martyr points on that. But it's like, you know you're going to die if you do this or you know how they're going to kill you or you know that kind of thing. That's more of the martyr mindset to me. But what she I mean, felt like, like to me from beginning to end... I would, I would say from Riddick's point of view, she's very much a martyr because coming after him, hearing him scream, this guy who has such amazing composure, a doctor can stick a needle in his eye and shoot like this silver crap over his retina, you know, who, who doesn't flinch or react to pain, does all this other stuff. He, he resets his elbow after the capsule's been popped in it by Johns without even grunting. You know, and if this guy's screaming and she runs into that, she had to feel like the odds were pretty bad and yet she still does it. And maybe it was just another gut reaction on her part. She still had something to prove. Uh, well, but yeah, again, I think she, as far as he's concerned, she martyred herself. I she think, felt more to me like someone who was in over their head and never recovered. That's, well, that's a good point too. Yeah. That, that's not quite the same as martyrdom. Um, but I can, I can accept and see that point. Because it is, uh, she's not Ripley, but it is the arc of, I decided to step up. 
Oh, interesting point. The original draft of the script, uh, Riddick was actually supposed to be a female. Yeah. Whose oh, name was going to be yeah? Who's going? Whose name was going to be Tara Krieg? So Tara War. <laughs> wow. So yeah. So like I said, I I see her stepping up, and I see her moral change, and I agree that it was good, and I agree that she both stated that she was willing to get in harm's way and demonstrated she's willing to get in harm's mm -hmm. way. I will give you all that. But I still think that it's what Nemesis said. Everything she did was a bit of a flail. Yeah. <laughs> was a bit of, I don't know what to do here, so I'm going to do the best I can because I made a crappy decision. So, like that. That, that, didn't quite, that didn't quite make it up to martyrdom for me because most of the time when you're a martyr, you go out there from the jump. Like, I get I you, but like, I'm thinking – I, I get that, but thinking in the terms of like all the religious uh, aspect of this film, uh -huh. uh, it, that's that's kind of where I draw from because like, you're right. She's not a proactive hero. She's a very reactive hero. Mm -hmm. Right. She didn't set a path and say, I'm going to do this, and if it costs me my life, she's reacting. And, and mm -hmm. then, you know, with just one, one quick uh, change of a scene, she didn't have to die at all. But her arc still would have been the same. That's what I'm saying. I don't know if I buy yeah. Martyr. She's st it still would have been the same redemptive arc. I don't know. I'm I'm kind of like uh, I'm kind of like Nemesis. I even though I hate it, I respect the fact that this is like that Whedon trope done well. Sometimes the good characters have to suffer, and sometimes even faithfully, fatally, uh, like the the Tolkienism. You know, it it works for me. One, yeah. one last point I would just add is that I like your point saying that she was doomed because I, I think that's what appeals to me. Mm -hmm. It's my black heart, but it's like sometimes <laughs> it's not a choice between life and death. You're going to die no matter what. It's a choice of how you're going to die and what you're going to die for. Yeah. You know? and, and and I think that Carolyn passed that test, you know, whoever's test it was. So at the end, in the end. And how can, soul, at least. how can a man die better than facing fearful odds in the ashes of his father in the temples of his God? Love that. Lay, okay. lay one's life down for thy brother. Okay, we're going to call it there, although now I'm feeling like we're going to have to do Oblivion because I love Oblivion, even though it's got more holes than a block of Swiss cheese. But anyway, we're all <laughs> reading right now. So, yeah, we're going to call this one here. Obviously, so much to discuss in this movie, so layered. Uh, somebody said earlier, well, actually, everybody said in one way or another that it was well thought out. That's mm -hmm. what makes this movie so satisfying. Even if you don't agree with the developments, you can see that there were great thought processes behind them and all things considered make sense in the context of the film. So, yeah, so I thoroughly enjoy this film. I watch it all the time. I'm, you know, I'm one of those. Uh, scream at the TV because you're about to do something stupid, people. <laughs> so, so, so if stupid is coming up, I'm like, don't go in the cave. But, you know, that's just me. because I. You know, I'm sorry. Are you the black guy in the theater? <laughs> Sometimes I am. <laughs> but a couple, of times, a couple of times I had to shush a couple of kids, so I'm also to get off the lawn, my lawn guy in the theater. Uh, but, I think uh, most of us are there. Yeah, because I'm like, I, I'm like, I, you know, just avoid the stupid. You'll live longer. It's just a suggestion. But anyway, so I want to thank my co-host. It's a great talk. Uh, 
Can't wait to go with the rest of the series. Aridic is one of the most unique and and uh, what's the word I want? Magnetic mm. characters we've seen in a long time. Where his story and his construction and his abilities and his background, everything is endlessly fascinating. And we could we could watch a series with him going from world to world, having adventures, just watching him be Riddick. Yep. In these different story worlds. And then, and last thing I'll say is I would love to see Riddick in the world of Flash Gordon. Mm. Take Flash Gordon's world and take it seriously and make it a Riddick series. And I just want you to imagine Riddick going to Arbor or imagine Riddick hanging out with the Hawkman or just anything. That would be, oh, my word. Oh, maybe John Carter Mars with Riddick. Uh, yeah, 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 because he's a survivor. But anyway, so I want to thank my co-host. Thank you so much, Nemesis. Uh, no problem. After this, I'm off to slam with my 40 menthol cools to get a shine. So <laughs> I'm ready to go. Thank you so much, Bracy. Hey, man, I am so glad we chose this particular franchise to dig into because the next movie, uh, this was a great movie. But from this point on, we develop a mythology. And I cannot wait to dive deeply into that. Thank you so much, Shaywin. Yeah, um, this has really been a fun movie to talk about and a really fun series to talk about. Uh, Riddick is just a really amazing character, and it's nice for, to actually talk about, you know, the characters you actually like and, and the movies that are actually good for once. So it's a really nice change of pace. All right, folks, that's it for this uh, live broadcast of uh, this episode, and we're talking about the Riddick series. That's it for Pitch Black. I want to thank you so much for watching us live, those that did. Uh, don't forget to check us out on Twitter. We'd love to hear your feedback. Don't forget to check out the uh, YouTube channel, Comic Crusaders. Lots of different shows there for lots of different geek and superhero tastes. And we will see you next time on the next episode of Sloppy Spoilers. Spoilers. Spoilers.